Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where we're celebrating Joe Burrow's landmark Heisman Trophy honor and the Saints win over the Indianapolis Colts on Monday Night Football. And Michael Carnahan of Little Rock, Arkansas, where the Little Rock Zoo recently welcomed an addition to their given troop. The as-yet-unnamed female was born to Mother Patty and Father Jeepers and has three older siblings. Thank you for joining us for Episode 42 of Clear and Convincing. In honor of the holiday season, we're going to break away from true crime and talk about a fun topic. So for our last show of 2019, we're joined by Michael Amo from Orange County, New York, which was formed in 1683 and named for the Prince of Orange, a member of the British royal family and the future William III of England, and Dr. Brian Langlois from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, birthplace of James Buchanan, the 15th President of the United States, and the only Pennsylvania native to ever hold the presidency, which he held from 1856 to 1861. Mr. Amo and Dr. Langlois are board members of Thorough Fan, a 501c organization founded to retain and enrich the experience of existing horse racing fans to attract new fans and to give fans a voice in the industry. We'll talk about horse racing, including improvement of fan experience, controversies in the media, and efforts to ensure that horses are taken care of after their careers on the racetrack are over. We'll also talk about the work Mr. Amo and Dr. Langlois are doing in their communities to enrich the lives of all creatures great and small. We are a live show and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. And Michael. (laughs) Good evening. (laughs) So, um, all right, well, we have a few topics, and, and in, in honor of your uh, history buff status, Dr. Langlois, those two facts about Orange County and Lancaster were for you. Oh, I, I appreciate that. That's uh, certain things, you know, I, obviously, yeah, we, we have Thaddeus Stevens, uh, not Thaddeus, well, we have Thaddeus Stevens here at college here, too, but uh, James Buchanan House is certainly an interesting place to go visit if anybody's in the area. And I wanted to say something other than Amish. 
We do have quite a few of those as well. My father's family is from Wilmington, Delaware, and (sighs) his grandfather is from Fulton County, which is also a pretty big Amish community Mm -hmm. as well. So um, I've only been there. I only got to go once as a kid. Because it was a long drive from Wilmington. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I mean, I'm thank... from. No, go ahead, Mike. No, I just want to thank Lisa for the introduction. I heard the recognizing the Saints, the New Orleans Saints. I, I have to jump in and say Drew Brees. Right, I'm a Purdue oh, grad. Yes. So I, I, I went to Purdue, Purdue's my game, my team. I'm, I'm a oh, Purdue guy. Our... Drew, Drew Brees is a Purdue guy. Yes, yes, he is. He certainly is. So I'm Are you a who dad as well? I'm right there. My alma mater. Go Purdue. <laughs> <laughs> go Boilermakers. Right. They ain't made one Boilermakers. Go Boilermakers. There we go. Are you a who dad as well? A what? A who dad. That's a Saints fan. No, I'm not. Well, I, would like, I like him because Drew's there, but I, I'm just tried and true <laughs> Purdue Boilermakers. All right. Well, that's that's fine. That's good. So, all right. Well, let's uh, let's get the show on the road here. Uh, first of all, Mr. Amo, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Well, sure. I'd, I'd love to do that. I, you know, uh, I I started Therofan with a group of about four or five people in nineteen two thousand eight, and the whole idea was really to try to help increase the fan base and give the fans a, a, a voice. And it all began with a, a year or two before that, when the New York state Senate had a hearing to uh, ask the people of New York, what they thought racing should be done, what should be done with racing to improve it. And the state Senator who was running the, the Senate hearing held, hand, held a hearing and it was a very good hearing. I went to it. And after the hearing, I was talking to him, and I said, well, why didn't you put a fan on the panel? And his answer was, well, where do we find him? I mean, a truly political answer. Where do we find him? And his point really was every other component of the racing industry has a representative organization or an organization representing them other than the fans. If you want a breeder, mm-hmm. you know where to go. If you want, a, if you want a, a trainer, you know where to go. You want an owner, you know where to go. But what if you want to get get somebody representing the fans? At that point in time in 2007, there was no organization that ostensibly said, we represent the fans. And I thought that was a need that we had to fill. And so our group put together and came up with Therafan in 2008 uh, with that express purpose to try to give the fan a voice. That's great. And you're also, uh, I noticed on your website, you do other things as far as aftercare and improving life on the backstretch and, and for backstretch workers. So you're kind of branching out into several things, not only for the fans, but for the sport of horse racing as a whole. Absolutely. I think we're all connected. I think, you know, we all try to, all of us are really fans. Nick Zito is on our advisory board and he said one to us one time to me, he said, and we've used it on our website. He said, you know, everybody's a fan. Everybody's a fan. It doesn't make a difference what you do in the industry. You're a fan. And I think we have to recognize that. Whether you're a groom or whether you're a trainer or an owner, 
you really are first and foremost, you're a fan. And I, and I think that voice of what the fan wants, not somebody who makes a living in the sport, but somebody who's a fan, what they really want needs to have a voice. And that was really the, the main reason. There's a lot of secondary branches that shot off Thorofan, but that was really the main reason. All right. <clears throat> and that is true. I Especially so. with with the calls from some groups to do away with it entirely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think Brian, Dr. Langlois, is, is, is a perfect example. I mean, I've had people talk to us, but what do you fans know about the sport? We're the trainers and we're the owners. We know about the sport. What do you guys know? I mean, look at, look at we have veterinarians that are fans. You know, we have pharmacists. PhD, we have a woman who's a Ph.D. pharmacist, who's an avid fan. She probably could tell mm-hmm. most trainers about medication than they even thought about. You know, and why do you why do you minimize the voice of the fan? The fan comes to the sport because they love the sport, but they know an awful lot about it. Don't don't set that aside. Use it. Right. That's, that's and if the, the fans message. aren't if the fans aren't coming to the races and they're not betting their money, there is no purse money. You're right. Because as I understand right. it, that's that's where it that's where it comes from. That's the bread and butter. Right. That's the bread and butter, and there's a lot of other ways to come. But really, you know, the fans are key to it. I mean, I always think about a three-legged stool of racing. You know, you have, you have the, you know, the horsemen, and you have the track, and you have the fans. If any one of those legs disappear or, or fall, the whole stool is going to tip over. It just can't survive. You got to, you got to keep them all going. And I, and I think, the industry is is probably in a lot of trouble because it doesn't really recognize the voice of the fan. Uh, you know, uh, Brian and Doctor about this a lot about in New York, we, one of the things that came out of that meeting I talked about with, before the state Senate is the New York state Senate then put together the racing fan advisory council, which was a, a fan group of five members selected by the, by the Senate, the assembly and the governor to advise the gaming commission on all things racing from a fan's perspective. And they have put it in place and, and, uh, the, 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 the governor appointed three people, the Senate appointed one, and the Assembly appointed one person. I was fortunate enough to get the Senate, I got the New York State Senate appointment, and I'm still on that committee. But I mean, that's a way you can get the fans' voice. I know Dr. Langlis has been working hard with Pennsylvania trying to do the same thing. Okay. <clears throat> All right. And Dr. Langlois? If you want to take a second and, or a minute or two minutes and introduce yourself. Sure. Um, you know, thanks for, for having me on. I'm a um, – uh, what a lot of people, I, I guess, wouldn't they, is that I'm actually a small animal veterinarian in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. But I'm from New York originally and was uh, from Long Island, New York, and introduced, uh, you know, to the sport of racing through my dad um, back in the uh, late – 80s, uh, first with the horse Brian's time, and then with um, the easygoer Sunday Silence rivalry, which really kind of solidified my, you know, love of racing. And uh, from there, I, you know, I had always, you know, dappled into thinking about wanting to be a vet. But it was really kind of when um, my dad and I were at the Breeders' Cup in 1990, and we were down at the rail, and we actually, you know, were basically right in front of where Go for Juan broke down in the stretch, and that kind of, you know, really solidified me wanting to be a vet. And uh, uh, Originally, I, I did think, thought I might go into racetrack medicine, but um, 
it turns out that just, uh, you know, as often happens in vet school, the your paths kind of change a little bit. And uh, so I do mostly, um, you know, nonprofit rescue work uh, here in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania with, with one of the organizations I'm part of. But, you know, I, to kind of, uh, you know, talk more also about kind of what um, Michael was talking about was, you know, I am a passionate fan of the sport, but also I, I've delved a lot more into the uh, understanding it and, and more from the regulatory side and things like that and, and advocacy probably in the last five years or so. So um, what I've really been involved in and kind of urged a lot of fans to get involved in is just being more involved in the in the state racing commission meetings and going to those meetings and, and uh, you know, letting your voice be heard. Uh, all of those meetings, they're public meetings, so they do have sections for public comment. And, uh, you know, it's just through constantly – bringing things up and constantly asking to be part of things that, um, you know, uh, usually you can get a little bit of your voice heard. And uh, it was really, you know, it, it took a couple of years, but finally the PA commission uh, did kind of form uh, a, a kind of an advisory group um, calling the Racing Equine Working Group, where we're talking about a lot of the issues that are going on in racing right now and how can PA racing kind of adapt and change. And one of the people that is on that uh, committee, you know, is me representing kind of the fan and handicapper. And so there's all the other stakeholders and the fan involved as well. So, you know, I, I really try to focus on helping people just understand a lot of the, the issues that are going on with racing and explaining a lot of the medical side of things and what certain drugs do and, and why they work the way they do, why people think they should be banned. Um, but just try to, you know, I try to provide basically the, the basic education for people so this way they can make informed and educated decisions themselves. It's, uh, you know, these are not easy issues, um, you know, that are black and white to kind of deal with in a lot of cases. So it's, it's important to have as much, you know, education as you can, but also to, you know, stand strong in your convictions. If you really feel a certain way, then, you know, I respect that from people, and uh, you know the the arguments can get heat quite heated at times. But uh, you know, we're all kind of on the you know the the same page with it. And what I really try to bring back to people is that you know, at the end of the day, it's really about the horse. And you know, without the horse, you right. know, we hear a lot of times, you know, without the owners, you have no sport. Without the, the the betters, you have no sport. All this, but what constantly to me always gets lost is well, without the horse, you have no sport. Um, uh, and, you know, that's that's the most important thing to come back to it. And that, I think, is when you really start looking at things from that perspective, you're going to bring a lot of fans back and new fans in. It's just you've got to shift the focus a little bit that's kind of been lost a little bit over the last couple of years. Correct. And that's I found I uh, came to know you because I, I found one of your videos talking about equine uh, anatomy of the leg. And breakdowns mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. why sometimes they're survivable and sometimes they just aren't. And that was, it was a great video. It was very informative. Oh, thanks. And and yeah, those are the kind of things. I mean, I know, and I kind of base a lot of what I do my videos on and education on just on what the topic of the moment might be. And at that point, there was a sport. It was right around the time you know after when Mongolian groom broke down in the Breeders' Cup and. A lot of people were constantly using the term breakdown, but it was, I think what a lot of people didn't know is, well, okay, what actually breaks down and, you know, why are horses different than people or even dogs and cats and the fact that, you know, well, if they get a broken leg or something, normally it's it's not a life-ending, it's not a life-threatening or life-ending injury. And just explaining kind of why it is um, and, and hopefully that 
brings the education to, to people to understand that it, it's not an automatic death sentence a lot of times, but, you know, there's reasons, and it's not because of lack of caring or lack of trying or anything like that with the horse. It's, it's just physiological. They're, they're, unfortunately, there are just certain things we cannot, uh, at least as far as modern medicine has come so far, we just can't do to save these horses. And it's actually more cruel and inhumane to attempt to persevere with them than to, to, to perform humane euthanasia. And so I, I try to, you know, get that across that, you know, it's not, we're, we're not euthanizing them because we, we're just giving up. It's it's because it really isn't the best interest of the horse sometimes. Correct. I think, Correct. just to jump in on that, Brian, I think, you know, uh, Lisa, one of the things that's really important to Therafan is, is educating the fan. So the fan is really understands the sport as much as he possibly they can possibly can. You know, an educated fan is really a good fan, and that's what Brian right. brings to the table for Thurfan. And to be able to educate people about about anatomy and physiology and and the kind of things he talks about through his through his, his videos is absolutely so important to to teaching all teaching the average fan about our sport. It's not just about gambling; it's about this whole sport. Right, and the love of the sport. Exactly. Because I don't bet, I have horrible luck, but I love watching horse racing. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why I do it, to see the horses. Yep. Yeah, and, and that's <clears> something <throat> that, you know, I, I think, and Michael will probably agree with this, you know, there, there there's a gambling element to the sport. I mean, you know, we, we can't deny that, but it, it seems like, everybody's kind of focusing on, well, we've got to make them gamblers. We've got to make them gamblers first and handicappers first. And and to me, and what some people think is it's actually got to be the opposite. You really have to kind of make them fans first so that mm-hmm. they'll stay engaged and then, you know, understand that the handicapping part of it. And now that sports betting has kind of come over to be mainstream now, you know, I talk to people and it's kind of the same thing. I mean, I'm sure there are people that are just stats people that no matter the sport, they just look at the stats, but a lot of these people that are betting on these various sports, I mean, they're fans of the sport. They they follow it and and they understand it and they you know that that's why they're betting. Um, and we've got to really find a way to do the same with racing uh, to to really make it you know uh, you know prosperous in the long term. Mm. Well, I think you know, Brian. One one of the points on gambling. Can I jump in, Lisa, for a minute? Is it if we sure, go back certainly. historically and and, re- and realize that what made racing so successful successful in the forties and fifties and sixties was racing was the only legal form of gambling outside Las Vegas for the most part. I may, I may make a couple of mistakes there, but for the most part, because if you wanted to bet, you could go to a racetrack and bet on a race. Uh, if you wanted to bet casino gambling, you have to kind of go to Vegas. Uh, and, and so right. really the market was cornered. Gambling market for racing was cornered. And and I think the scary thing is now that we have a proliferation of casinos all over the country and sports betting and everything, that racing is getting challenged for its for its share of the pie. And that is that if you know, there's lots of ways to spend your gambling dollars other than on horse racing today, unlike there was twenty, thirty years ago. So racing has to recognize that, that they gotta make people wanna love the sport. And then follow it up by enjoying the handicapping and the gambling piece, because otherwise, there's probably other more attractive ways to gamble uh, than going to a racetrack. That is that I mean, is true. I mean, if you go to a casino, I mean, 
and I'm not a great casino gambler. I enjoy going once in a while, but all kinds of uh, shows and venues and restaurants and, 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 and beautiful environment at most casinos. Racetracks right. are opposite of that. And so you really have to love the sport if you want to go and participate in racing. And, and if we don't really build that love of the sport and love of what the whole game is about, we're going to lose people to our competitors a lot more. That is true. And I've, I've heard that mentioned in other, you know, by other commentators and other uh, analysts that it is a lot of competition with casinos. I know I, when I lived in Arkansas, um, the Southland dog track, when they opened their casino, the dog racing business went down. Yep. Because then people were yep. just going to the casino and playing the slot machines or blackjack yep. or whatever. I mean, how do you compete? That's when yeah, no, no, you're right. You're right. Well, how do you compete? I mean, to take out at a race, horse racetrack is on the average about 20%, right? I mean, you go from 15 to 25, depending on what kind of bet you play. Most, if you play any one of them, blackjack, for example, is probably under 2%. Take off the house advantage is two percent. Mm-hmm. You go to a racetrack, it's twenty percent. I mean, from a total gambling perspective, you kind of look at gamble. Why do you want to gamble on the horses? It's not a winning proposition. You're giving too much away to the house, giving too much away to the track. So right. it's okay. But it's a skill game, so you can you can reduce that because you understand the game and how to play it. Unlike a random game like cards. But still, you, that's the competition you're fighting, and you have to really get people to love the sport, to want to go there, and understand it. Now, that's what about opinion. concessions and and things like that at the different? I know they're di- you know different from different tracks, but like Saratoga just built a beautiful. This is the 1863. 1863. Yes. Yep. Is that like a an elite, or is it for the everyday fan. I, I mean, it's more like the elite. I think they're, they're, I forget the numbers. They're getting around $75 a seat to sit at a table okay. plus all your expenses. I mean, it's not, it's, not, it, it's expensive okay. to go into, but I've been into it. I, I'm, I'm ba- I got a house, in, I'm up in Saratoga. It's my main track I go to. And it's, I mean, it's a beautiful event, venue and it, it, it treats the, the, the high end players very well. Okay. That may be also a way to try and compete with the casinos. Yeah. Bring a little bit of that high-end treatment for for some racing fans, but not necessarily. Sure. And, 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 not the I little mean, guy. At, at Churchill Downs, they got Millionaire Row. You know, it's that, right. those big boxes up in the top, and they're, you, nobody goes to those. They're, they're, you can't afford to go to them unless you're a corporation or a high player. Uh, if you're a fan, right. you're you're going to be in you're going to be in the grandstand. Right. So for for them, they they might want to think about something a little bit that's more within means of the average. Like if I go to the fairgrounds, you know, I'm going to have x x number of dollars to spend. If I spend it all getting a diet coke, it's it's going to be, you know, it's going to go home with me. That's right. That's right. And so that they, is a problem. That's something 
they might want to think about. So. I mean, one of the things we, we, we look at, and Brian may have a point on this, but if you get like at Saratoga, which, you know, it's to get into the clubhouse, I think it's now $10 uh, admission okay. just to walk in the gate. And that's not a seat. If you want a seat, it's probably going to cost you around $25 a seat. Just in the grand in the clubhouse or anywhere to sit down and watch the races, you don't get to get you don't get to sit down. You got to stand up and watch it on TV. And if you buy a bottle of water, it's you know five six bucks for a bottle of water, ten dollars for a beer. It, 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 yeah. it, it's so expensive to be a fan. Right. So that's, I mean, that's, that's I, mean the... I think all sports are going that way. If you go to the watch the, the baseball game or the, or the Saints, it costs very <laughs> a lot of money to get a seat, and it costs a lot of money to to go to those things. So you can't really complain too much about comparing racing to other sports in terms of access. There, it is expensive. All, going to the movies is like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, going to the movies, you pay like three seventy five for a drink and ten dollars for a box of M and M's. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean it's 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 ridiculous. So well, I always think about are, you know, it, it, Insane. I mean, I've saw, I've I've had little little limited experience, but if, if you were to go to you know rural Ascot and go in, I mean, sometimes I think they had read one time the admissions are on the average about thirty to fifty dollars to get into a European racetrack. Uh, okay. It, it, it's it's a total different game. Yeah. So it's expensive to go racing, but but you gotta if you love the sport, you're gonna go. That's the whole thing. That, that's what we're right. all about. We're not trying to. I'm not trying to criticize the economic models of the game at this moment. The point is, really, if you really love the sport, you really think it's great. You're gonna, you're gonna enjoy it, and you're gonna go. Exactly. And uh, in addition to loving the sport, uh, we love the horses. Mm-hmm. And. Um, you are also involved with Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, mm-hmm. which basically accredits different rescue and rehoming organizations around the country right. um, to make sure that after their careers end, whether it's retiring to a pasture or a second career like show jumping or hunting or or dressage that these horses are taken care of because horses on average can live 25 to 30 years. Yes. You have to ask Dr. Langlois that question. But I think Langlois, you're right. Dr. Langlois. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, you know, on average, uh, provided everything, you know, the horse stays healthy and all that, you know, a lot of horses are living into their mid twenties easily um, now. And you figure, you, know, you look at it, it most racing horses, they probably, you know, even if they're running at the lower level tracks, they're running till maybe they're six, seven years old. Um, Correct. And then, you know, just the rigors of racing and, and infirmaries and things like that and uh, take their toll and they're just not competitive anymore. So that's, you know, 14 more, 15, sometimes 20 more years that these horses have to be cared for. And, and aftercare was really something that, was not even thought of too much in the industry even 15 years ago. Um, there were some small groups that were doing it and rehoming them, but it really wasn't a mainstream effort. Um, and it really has probably, I would say, exploded in, in po- popularity. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, just in the 
uh, you know, efforts to rehome a lot of these horses, I would say, in the last 10 years or so. Um, and, uh, you know, now all of a sudden, of course, with, with the extra social media push and, and uh, changing attitudes of people, it, it really has taken kind of front and center. Uh, one of the major issues, you know, facing racing right now is, you know, you, you do have on average 20, 25,000 foals born a year. And so, you know, they're, they've got to be able to be cared for uh, through their entire right. lives. So aftercar, aftercare plays a huge role in that. And for the foals who don't have what it takes to even to ever race, there are organizations that make sure that they lead go, good full lives, um, even if they never race. Yeah, you know, that's that's kind of the hope. And I, I think what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, they think of thoroughbreds as solely as racehorses. And um, really, thoroughbreds are very versatile when it comes to various uh, disciplines. So they, they do make very, very good show jumpers. Um, they make good uh, dressage horses. They make great eventing horses. Uh, so, you know, it, it, they're not really always locked into one career. And a lot of times you'll hear the stories of horses that just, they do, you know, some horses just truly also just don't have an interest in racing. Um, you know, they, they just don't mm-hmm. have that competitive spirit. And, but, you know, you, you work to retrain them or cross train them into something like show jumping and they go to the highest levels and compete at the elite levels and, and win. So it's, uh, uh, you know, they, there really are some amazing success stories when that comes. And, and that's really what aftercare is, is trying to promote more and more of, but, uh, it still is a challenge. I mean, you know, it's it's like I kind of compare it. You know, it's not like adopting out a dog or a cat. It's uh, mm-hmm. um, horses. Obviously, are much bigger creatures, so they require a lot more space to house. Um, they have different nutritional requirements. They some vet care for them sometimes, even for some basic issues, can run into the thousands of dollars. Um, uh, if you've got something that's you know needs a little bit of time to be fixed, so uh, it's not an easy, it's not an inexpensive thing to do, and so uh, you know there are logistical and and resource um, obstacles to to making sure that every single horse that's born and then goes on to a racing career has a home right now. It's uh, it's something that the industry is working very hard to yeah. to correct, but you know we're we're still not there yet by any means. You know, I think that, Lisa, that kind of started it. You talked about the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance. Um, a guy named, you probably know Jack Wolf, who runs Third, uh, Starlight Racing, I think it's called. But, but Jack really is the, was really the founder of the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance. He's one of the guys who said, you know, we really have to find a way to, to, to do what you're just, we're all talking about now. And he put mm-hmm. a group together. I'm going to, I don't know the exact year, but I was invited to be part of it. And we all, you know, we, in fact, we met at the face of Tipton Pavilion in Saratoga to figure out how we're going to take this forward and, and where we're going to go with it. And I got, I know Madeline Albright from California was the chairman of the, of the committee sort of setting it up. And I was part of the advisory group to that and sort of go back to my background to help understand that is that, you know, I, I, I'm a racing fan. I'm not a great uh, expert in the area of equine management, but what I am is that I, I spent, 27 years of my life as a hospital administrator. Uh, that, that was my background in my career. Uh, and during that time, I was very, very involved in the accreditation processes of hospitals. Uh, how do you get accredited by the Joint Commission of Accreditation and Healthcare Organizations? Um, helping and all of them have to pass in order to get reimbursed for their care they deliver. And so when Jack and I were talking about that, he said, well, you know, if we're going to put together an alliance that accredits 
aftercare facilities, we're going to have to put standards together and we're going to have to have them measurable so that we can go out and, and measure if, if an aftercare organization is doing a good job. And then some way we can, some way we can find a way to fund them. And so my role on that group really was focused on trying to work with the, with the group to try to come up with appropriate standards that were measurable uh, mm -hmm. so that you could actually go out and accredit an organization and, and measure whether or not they met the standards you want them to meet. And that really was my total role and not main role. And I did remain involved in the advisory committee. Uh, but that was, that was really important because if, 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 if you, there's a limited amount of resources available, and so you want to make sure you pick the ones, the right organizations that are doing the right thing for the horse that you want to, you know, want to provide resources for. And that was really the goal. But I think the aftercare Alliance is really taking off and it, and it's really a real, a real important thing that's happening in our industry. And I can see that tracks and horsemen and breeders are all getting on board. It is the right thing to do. Correct. And uh, among your accredited facilities are old friends where yep. after after their careers are over, their stud duties are over, when they're pensioned, they can live with Mr. Bluen, um, who loves every single one of them. Like, it's, they're, they're all his favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Except, well, Silver Charm and War Emblem have a very, very special place. I remember, and then Al Mims. Yeah, I was out at Old Friends with the, the week after they got Silver Charm, and he was there, and the big white old white old horse there, and Michael Malone was there, and he was, you know, he was showing us around, and you know, I can remember just walking up to that the, the rail, and he comes he comes up to the, the the fence here, and he leans over the fence, and he's like, I'm going, oh my gosh, this is Silver Charm. Mm -hmm. it, it really, it really swells you up when you meet them and you go to there. And he, the hundreds that he have there—they're great horses. It's just so wonderful yeah. to go to old friends in Kentucky and, and and see that farm. If you've never been there, I recommend anybody that goes to Kentucky to go out and to go to old friends and go on a tour. It, it is really an exciting place to be. Yeah, I, that's on my bucket list of things to do, and to go to Coolmore to see American Pharaoh and Justify. Oh yeah. Um, so, have you had, and then, have you, have um, you talked about getting Michael Blowen on your, on your podcast here? No, I have not. Um, oh, I've he, thought about he's it. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. You'd love him. He's a great guy. I love, I love his interviews. Uh, every time I see a video on Facebook or Twitter, I watch it three or four times. I just love, uh, I, I do. I love him so much. He's and great. he's so lucky because. Those horses get to be, they're just horses now. Yeah. Yeah. And enjoying the life. Yeah. He's a, he's a, he's a real, he's a real, real, a real hero in our sport. Yes. So, um, and they also have the, they do have a New York facility yep. as well. Cabin Creek, the, the Bobby Frankel. Cabin division. Creek. Yep. Yeah. So so I will. I will small, think about it. it. That's small, but it's very I, nice. I've been there too. It's yeah. very nice. I'm a true crime show usually, but every now and then to kind of lighten the mood, I like to look. I like to look at horse horse racing and talk about horse racing. <laughs> so, um, although one of these days I might do um, a show about Aladar. 
because of all the conspiracy theories and uh, differing opinions about what happened to him. That would be interesting. Yeah. And there's a lot there, isn't there? Dr. Langlois, as a fellow history buff, Mm -hmm. you would definitely have to be a guest. Yeah, that that um, it, that still is a very interesting story, and I don't think you're ever going to get 100% consensus um, on what truly happened with him. Um, if you talk to uh, some of the vets, I think Dr. Bramlich is one of them, um, I don't think they've completely debunked the you know the the theory of that his leg was intentionally broken um but based on the fractures and things that they saw in the in the work that they did to try to save him they said that the type of fracture was more consistent with just more of a freak accident than anything else but uh there's still a lot of you know uh, because, conspiracy theories that that float around with that and um right. you know it was because of just the circumstantial uh, um, issues yep. With um, with the with the farm being in such financial straits and yeah. um, um, was it Calumet like or was it another one? Uh, no, it, was it wasn't Calumet. Calumet. It was mm-hmm. Calumet. Yeah, okay. it, it was Calumet, and it was kind of it was amazing how he was Alidar was really the last true money making stallion for them, and uh, you know I there's there's a great I think I can't remember the name of the book off the top of my head, um, but there's a great book about that and and uh, J T Lundy and um, you know what, what happened to the farm after he came on as manager, and and, and things like that, and and talking about okay. um, the whole history of it. Um, I don't know why the name I'm of the sorry, book escapes you, me, but Brian, that was I think that was called was that called a wild ride? A wild ride, yep. I think, mm-hmm. I think that was the call because um, you're right, it was a great book. Yeah, so it, it okay. really delves a lot more to the history of Calumet and and Alidar, and um, they had Criminal Type around the same time, too, who was kind of one of their last big horses. And it's, uh, you know, again, for, for a history person like me, too, and just a racing fan, it's it's so weird now to see the fact that the, the original Calumet colors, the, the red and the blue on the sleeves, was actually sold to a different company, TNT Stud. Um, and so now when you've got Calumet Farm, it's it's a totally different, you know, silks color uh, that you see than the you're used to. So it's it's really kind of still odd and, and bittersweet in a lot of ways to, to see the the change that's gone on there. But there, there's, you know, there's very few of those, you know, true, real, powerful family-based farms left uh, in the industry. It's just uh, you just don't see them anymore. Right, because it's, I think, Taylor and uh, Taylor made – is still the Taylors are still in it, and uh, mm-hmm. and you've got the Hancock. Hancocks with Claiborne, Claiborne, and um, and Stone Farm with you know uh, uh, with with the other Hancock there. So, but uh, but you know a lot of the other you know big family farms they've just you know the the family you don't have the same type of ownerships that you used to have you know in in decades past when it really was uh, some more of the real families involved in racing, and and that's yeah you, know, you know and that's something that's also plaguing the industry right now a little bit too is, you know, back then you were breeding to really race your horses and, and race them for a period of time. Now it's, you're almost like racing to breed. It's it, the, the economics of the game right. have shifted a little bit, which, um, you know, is really unfortunate even from a fan standpoint, because, you know, one of the things we really need in the sport to really increase, you know, the fan is, is stars that they can follow and, um, when you get some of these horses that, you know, American Pharaoh is a perfect example of, 
you know, he could have really garnered a, a long-standing following had he, you know, been been allowed to race as a four-year-old. And um, right, it was just something that no, that the the stud money was just too much to to really pass up and. And it's it's unfortunate. Yeah, we I kind of equate it to if you look at the NBA, you know, or or, or someplace. But let's say if LeBron James came in and you know played maybe one or two seasons, and then just decided, you know what, I'm going to retire and you know just live off endorsement deals or whatever. You, you know, you, you wouldn't have the same fan base mm-hmm. following him as you would, and it's 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 a problem right. in racing getting people to really follow these horses. Right. Yeah, they should make it more like the Rolling Stones that there was a farewell tour. And then a decade later, another farewell tour. Yep. <laughs> so, um, but I know with horses, you can't really do that. But, yeah, it is. It, most horses are retiring at three. Very few run to four and five. Unless yeah, and, they were and, gelded. Unless they were gelded. And, and again, the economics, I understand it. They, oh, it. It's the economics of the game right now. But, you know, we've those of us that are fans or discuss it that's have said there's got to be there's got to be more of an economic incentive to keep them racing um instead of just going off to the breeding shed so you know one of the things um and and michael would probably remember this but years ago we're talking back back in the 90s they did actually have something that was almost like the sprint cup series now in nascar it was called the american championship racing series where they had a series of races for older horses, handicap horses, um, that was tied to a point system. And, you know, there were bonuses and in, in, in money given out at the end of the year for horses that accumulated the most points. And it it was a very successful series when it first started, but as what happens in most things in racing is since you don't have a centralized kind of authority overseeing it, each of the racetracks all of a sudden just said, no, I, I don't want to really continue with it because it's chewing away at this or we could make more money if we did that. Um, so the series kind of fell apart because of infighting among the, the participants. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of the other biggest issues in racing right now, too, is everybody's kind of out for themselves and there, there's not a lot of, you know, congeniality going on where everybody really wants to, you know, maybe make a touch of a sacrifice for the betterment of the sport overall uh, because they're all just kind of out for themselves. It's You've got, I think it's 28 to 30 different racing organizations right now, and and that just makes it really difficult sometimes. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that a little bit later um, yeah. with some of the some of the things that I came up looking through different articles for potentials for innovation in the sport across the board. Yep. Um, but another another uh, I guess organization that I want to talk about very quickly is Pet Pantry of Lancaster. Uh, yeah, which, that is um, uh, not not really racing related, but it's it's the organization that I kind of helped co-found along with two other people here in Lancaster. And um, you know, this is like I said, where my veterinary focus is. So it's uh, we're a, a, a nonprofit organization uh, started about eight years ago in Lancaster, and we started basically with the premise of um, that people should not have to surrender their dogs or cats um, or their pets solely because of the inability to feed them. Uh, So, you know, we started right around the time of when the economic downturn really started hitting um, 
or just a little bit after it, and we were seeing, I was working at a different shelter at the time, and, and we were seeing dogs and cats that were being surrendered solely because their owners just couldn't afford to feed them. Uh, you know, they were really going through tough economic times, either permanent through, like, disability or, mm-hmm. you know, just temporary. They had lost their job or they had had an illness or something. So we kind of started the pantry with that, and so... Um, We've just slowly built up over the last eight years, and now we're helping approximately 200 families or so um, a month uh, with pet food. Uh, some of them are uh, what we kind of what we call lifers, so they have uh, pets that are on the program for life because they're on social security or disability or something. And then we have ones that come onto the program, you know, for a couple of months because they have an economic hardship, they're changing jobs, or they've had a, a medical crisis or a family crisis or something. We help them out for a couple of months, and then they go off the program because they're back on their feet. So it's uh, it really kind of filled a niche, at least in this area, of something that really wasn't being offered. And eventually we kind of expanded it to have a very small, like not small anymore, but um, medium-sized cat rescue where we adopt out usually between 450 to 500 cats a year. And then uh, the veterinary side, which I'm more involved in, um, we do offer lower-cost spay-neuter and vaccines to people um, and uh, kind of emergency care for those that can't afford regular veterinary care in emergency situations. So they can be referred over to us, and I can usually do what I can to kind of help in those situations, and we can work payment plans Mm -hmm. with people. So it's, uh, you know, it's been kind of a win-win for everybody. So, uh, you know, the animals aren't facing euthanasia, and, you know, they're going back you know, with their owners, and we're kind of keeping that human-animal bond together. So it's, uh, you know, it's kind of where my passion lies, in addition to racing, obviously. Uh, but, uh, you know, my passion lies in this to be able to, you know, uh, take on those those tougher cases and, and help those people through things. And uh, we've just, you know, been really fortunate with the support of the community and the support of everybody and, and, and amazing staff and volunteers that, you know, we're just continuing to grow. And, you know, one area that I would like to actually expand it to, hopefully in the near future, is actually providing uh, food for horses. So um, for people that might be struggling a little bit to feed their horses with, you know, being able to provide them hay and feed for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. But logistically, we're not quite there yet. Um, that's kind of our right. next step and leap up uh, as far as that right. goes. And I love that. And I, I posted four pictures on our show page of their Miss Kitty, Tinsel, and Mistletoe. Yep. <laughs> who are all available for adoption. Yep, they are all, I believe they're still uh, currently available for adoption. And, yeah, we'll usually get them in in groups, so they usually do share kind of themed names depending on uh, mm-hmm. uh, what our rescue coordinators are thinking about that day. So. And I, I chose the their adult and young, but not kittens. Yeah, and yeah, I think the adult, um, obviously young everybody seniors. wants a kitten, uh, you know, and, and those are much easier to adopt out. But it is the adults that, you know, you know, still, and, and even, a, you know, when we say adults, we're talking like even one- to two-year-old cats. It doesn't have to be very old cats. Um, those right. can be harder to adopt out. But uh, we've got, you know, people are really supportive, and uh, a lot of people find that the adults are just as great or even better than the kittens because they don't have to worry about all the craziness that kittens bring sometimes. So. They're right. uh, just looking for a, a, a great companion, and, and cats really can be that. So we're we're thrilled to be able to provide those second hand, second chances and second homes for those people. Great, and I I love the pet pantry. Um, if someone in another jurisdiction was interested in starting a similar uh, organization in their area, 
what would yeah. you what would you best way to do it? Um, really, it's uh, what we advise people is to start small. Um, you know, that's that's uh, that's what we did. We f- I find one of the biggest mistakes that that some organizations do when they try to do this is they try to take on too much too quickly. Um, and and it's this, especially if you're looking at a food program, it, there is a lot that's involved in it from a logistical standpoint. Um, you know, I mean, we give out uh, on average seven to nine thousand pounds of dry pet food alone every month, mm-hmm. um, and that's stuff that's donated into us. So uh, there, there's a whole donation network that has to be set up. There's storage that you have to have for it. You have to keep on track of things like recalls. Um, uh, you have to make sure that the food is appropriate for everybody. Um, so there's a lot of legwork and logistics involved in it. And if you start small and just you know realize that you're only going to be able to help a small amount to start and then build off of that, you know you, you'll be pretty successful. It's uh, but uh, you know it's it's something that is definitely needed in a lot of communities. And um, you know a lot of places now are starting to look at partnering with the the human food pantries and food banks that are out there, um, as they already have some of the logistical setup done where they can just provide mm-hmm. the pet food portion of it. So that's another avenue for people to kind of explore a little bit. But um, but yeah, I mean, if anybody wanted to contact us at the Pet Pantry, we'd be more than happy to, to talk to them about how we went about it. And, uh, you know, we can certainly give them some advice and tips and things like that for getting started in their own okay. community with it. All right. That would be great because I I was talking to a friend on Facebook who um, is struggling financially and also trying to help ferals in his air in his area and you know he's struggling financially trying to feed them all and this yeah, would be it, something that would be great for him to turn to to help not necessarily mm-hmm. it does, it's not going to provide his entire need but just to help supplement his need yeah and that's i mean you know that that's a whole kind of separate area a little bit um we do try to provide food to those that are taking care of ferals when we can um, but one area somebody like that certainly could look into is sometimes if they go to pet stores or even places like Walmart, uh, they'll say, hey, do you have any damaged bags of food that you can't sell that you'd be willing to donate for that purpose? Um, and sometimes, you know, those stores will give up a little bit uh, for for that purpose for them to be able to feed and it takes a little bit of the, the stress off of having to pay for the food all the time. Okay. I'll pass that on. Mm-hmm. It, it's worth a try. Yeah, the worst they can yeah. do is say no, and then you just move on to somebody mm-hmm. else. Right. He's he's going to continue doing it because he's stubborn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I will. I'll 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 make that suggestion to him. See if he's ever tried it. Uh, and it could be Walmart, Petco, PetSmart. PetSmart. I was some of the smaller. You know, if there's like a mom and pop pet shop, you know, any of them, just ask. Because okay. usually with those, what they end up doing. Uh, they can't sell them, so they sometimes return them for the company for a credit. But other times, they can just donate it and then write it off, as you know, as far as that goes. Okay. Too, so. All right. And then you also are involved with rehor- racehorse rehoming in Pennsylvania. P A R. Yeah. Um. Well, I I handle. I'm not quite involved with them as much as I was, but I, I still fairly am. Uh, with a group called Pennsylvania Racehorse Rehoming, Rehabilitation, and Rescue. So uh, the acronym, you know, we commonly go as PAR. And 
basically it was a rescue that was started about five or six years ago by uh, a veterinarian, Dr. Catherine Papp, who um, is a phenomenal equine veterinarian. Uh, you know, she has a way of, of finding uh, the issues that are affecting horses when a lot of other vets can't and, and treating them. And so uh, she and her husband does train racehorses. So um, they kind of started by taking in uh, the racehorses in, from her family that, you know, no longer were, were had the ability to race. So they were being trained for second careers, and it kind of expanded a little bit to take on then other horses from the Pennsylvania and the Atlantic region um, that were looking for second homes and things like that. But kind of what sets PAR apart a little bit is because um, it's it's basically run by Dr. Papp, um, she, she lives on the property. And so basically she and PAR can take on some of the more in-depth medical cases um, or the more challenging medical cases that require more in-depth treatment that maybe some other rescues couldn't because of cost for vet care and things like that. Um, so we've, uh, you know, they, they've done work, some real miracles with, with some of the horses they have, they've, they've taken in and, uh, I believe they've adopted out close to 250 horses so far, um, which, you know, for a small time rescue is, is, is a pretty impressive feat and it, they're all 100% volunteer run. Um, you know, there's no paid staff, uh, you know, basically every extra cent that Dr. Pat makes, um, with her equine and her vet businesses goes into the rescue. It's, uh, it, it's a really, you know, well, it's a really great setup, um, that she has there. And really it doesn't get the exposure it probably should, um, because we're not, necessarily like an old friends we don't have some of the bigger named horses mm. or things like that um we don't really have a lot of large-scale donors that you know support us and in pa it's, it's a little bit difficult because you do have actually the two the two main um racehorse uh rehoming uh organizations in pa are tied to the racetrack so you have um uh, New Start, which is uh, based out of uh, Penn National and the Pennsylvania Horsemen's Association there, which is great and does amazing things, and Turning for Home, um, which uh, which is out of Parks in Philly and their Horsemen's Group. And Turning for Home is really kind of what the model is based off of for, um, you know, running an effective rehoming program off the racetrack. Uh, so, you know, they get a lot of the, you know, exposure as well they should. Um, and so it's harder sometimes for smaller time, smaller town rescues for, for like par to really kind of get the exposure, um, you know, to get some more of those donations. But, um, anybody who wants to donate, like I said, uh, your donation goes 100% towards the horses and, um, we do adopt a, a fair number out. We also have, uh, you know, probably like 10 or so that are what are kind of considered lifers on the farm. So they've, mm-hmm. they've got medical issues that just really kind of prevent them from being able to be adopted out. Um, but that doesn't mean they're any less important, uh, but they need to kind of be monitored closely for any issues. So they are going to just stay on the farm and live out their lives and enjoy things. And uh, we've got a great core group of volunteers that work um, for par and, and helping out the horses and stuff. So it's uh, it's a really nice organization. People should people should check it out and, and, and definitely donate if they can. All right. And also on um... – Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, you can go, and, and they have accredited groups that they work with. We have one in Covington, Louisiana, mm-hmm. which I was very happy to see. Uh, I didn't see any in Arkansas. <clears throat> uh, but And look in your local, you know, your local track and support these organizations. 
because they need as much support as they can get to be able to do a really great thing for um, for the horses that give us so much. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's kind of like we've always said, you know, the horse provides so much for us and 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 gives everything that they possibly have, and you know at the very least we owe it to them to be able to to give back and and provide them with homes after the racetrack, and uh, you know it, it's 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 probably a, an area that doesn't get as much credit as it should from mainstream media uh, with, with what the industry has really tried to do with, with aftercare and uh, really in, increase, you know, the awareness and the funding for aftercare. And like I said, they're not 100% there yet, but they've really made great strides over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's not all always the gloom and doom that, that some people talk about, uh, you know, with the post-racing careers right. and resources. Well, yeah, I mean, Cosmic One went to uh, Thoroughbred Makeover, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he did quite well, and he seems very well suited to dressage or or eventing or jumping and yeah. was happy as a clam. Mm-hmm. Whereas and, when and that's racing, the perfect example of a horse that just did not really take to racing. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, obviously he had the connect, you know, the, the, the you know, with his mom uh, being Zenyatta and all that, and uh, he had the breeding. To, to potentially be a really good one, but um, just did not really seem to take the racing. Um, and but that again didn't have he, the same drive. Nope. Um, and but he had the drive to compete in other disciplines, and it's uh, it, it, in some ways it's it's very gratifying to see sometimes because you do see these thoroughbreds that you know really uh, did not sell for a lot of money or, or very successful on the track, and they're going out to these major events and they're beating these other warm bloods that cost, you know, half a million, a million dollars in the show rings. And it just really shows mm-hmm. that thoroughbreds, you know, they're very versatile. Right. Oh, yeah, the videos of Cosmic One when he first went to uh, the D'Souza's and, mm-hmm. like, the first or second or third day, and he's going around the ring and he's got natural form for dressage. Yep. It was beautiful to see. And took to everything like, you know, a duck to water. Nothing scared him, nothing spooked him. Just happy as he could be. And he loved seeing his fans at the competition at the end of the the period. Because a lot of his mama's fans and and his fans came to see him, and his brother's iconic is going to be, I believe, going the same route. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just uh, his trainer, uh, John Terrace, was was talking about that because he's got a daughter of Zenyatta now, a two year old, um, who is training and is much more keen on racing. He said, and it seems he said mm-hmm. it seems to be that. Uh, the the male the cults from Zenyatta just don't seem to be that interested in racing. Um, they don't really seem to have the drive. But the the fillies, or at least the one filly he has from her, uh, certainly does seem to have more of a drive for racing and things like that. So um, yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see what she does on the track. But yeah, definitely following Cosmic One and Iconic as they you know go on to second careers and things like that. And and the, and the hope really is you know that we can expand it to where you know like I said with Par we don't get in the the cosmic ones or the psychonics are the ones that people really, you know, know from, from named horses. It's just, you know, your average everyday thoroughbred off the track that's run for five or six years and uh, still has a lot to give, maybe just not on the racetrack, but, you know, they, they still 
you know, deserve no less just because they're kind of not known or not, you know, have, don't have that name recognition mm-hmm. to them. So. Well, maybe you should go back and look at their pedigrees and find Man of War and um, Hardtack and Seabiscuit and mm-hmm. uh, you know, all these other big Hyperion, all these other big names. Um, I don't, I don't know if you follow or see Glorious Alliance on yep. Twitter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, when she passed away, I was looking at her pedigree, and I was like, "This is like racing royalty, all in her pedigree." So yeah, no, definitely. Really and, and that's also where, you know, some of the education comes in, too, because you talk to the average fan and they may not necessarily know who some of those horses are. So it's, you know, uh, bringing them back to a little bit of the glory years of racing, um, you know, when, when you did have these horses that were known. Uh, you know, I mean, they were basically national idols in, in some ways. So it's uh, right. uh, it's definitely something to try to, again, it goes to the education of, of getting people to really, you know, realize and appreciate you know, how great some of those horses really were. Yeah. You know, I think it's it, it, it's something interesting. When you mentioned Zenyatta, uh, which we all know and love, the, love her, uh, you mentioned uh, Arkansas and Hot Springs. I assume that's a base you have, Lisa, or you know something about it. But I remember, I forget what year it was, but you probably help me remember, but I was at uh, Oaklawn when Zenyatta ran, um, and, and uh, I can't remember what race was, but they introduced her. And I was sitting in the stands, and you've probably seen the video on, on YouTube, but when she curtsied for the whole whole crowd, I don't know if you ever saw that. I mean, she they called, they were going, they had her in the infield saddling her, mm-hmm. and they said, you know, and they come in, number so-and-so was Zenyatta, and she bowed. Oh, wow. And my God, she, the whole stands went crazy. At Oakland Park, she, and it was like she used to. Wow, you know, you, this is what people to want to see in racing. This brings us ties us to our sport. This, this is the a, whole experience. A superstar. Yeah, yeah, and, and and she knew it, and it was so great. I, I tell the story where I was doing. I wrote about uh, cigar recently, and I remember I was at Saratoga one morning when cigar only ran there once in allowance, but he worked out for Vermont all the time. And he would stand waiting to do, on the on the rail, waiting to get his turn to go to work out. And he would turn and look over his shoulder and look at the people watching him. And he'd just kind of stand there elegantly and say, "Yes, I'm Cigar. I'm the champion." Mm-hmm. You know, and it, you could, it was like, "Oh my gosh, is is there something special about that uh, that that you really appreciate?" He he was that way at the Kentucky Horse Park. Yeah. Oh, he was well. amazing. Mm-hmm. And he would he would play to his audience. Oh, he was terrific! Uh, just to get him to laugh, you know. While yep. the announcer's talking, he would yawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's great. You know, that's the part of racing people. You know, if, if all you're doing is betting on them, that's the part you miss. Mhm. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, because don't take it away. I like I like, by, I like to place my wagers. I'm going to bet on the fast brown one (laughs) All right Well let's take our quick break um, And then we'll get into our second hour Of 
clear and convincing. Yes, ma'am. We're you're listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. We'll be right back after this. Here comes Santa Horse, here comes Santa Horse, right down Santa Horse Lane. Elvish horses called Icelandics like to lead the way. Hands are rising, stalls are cleaned, and all is merry and bright. So hang your halters and may your prayers, cause Santa Horse comes tonight. Here comes Santa Horse, here comes Santa Horse, right down Santa Horse Lane. He's got hay nets filled with tack and lots and lots of rain. Hear those hoofbeats clipping, clocking, oh what a beautiful sight. So try to your stall and close your eyes, cause Santa Horse comes tonight. Here comes Santa Horse, here comes Santa Horse, right down Santa Horse Lane. He doesn't care if you're... Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub on Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Want to see you? Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub on Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Yes, ma'am, we sure are. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so now we'll we'll get into some of the topics and um that we I propose, but as I told Mr. Amo earlier, if we don't cover them all, that's okay. And the first one, um, of course, the biggest controversy for the past couple of years have been deaths and injuries of horses at racetracks around the country. And last year was the, um, I think the worst was what was going on at Santa Anita. However, it 
a lot of times the causes of death were all lumped into one thing when the reality was there were different causes of of death. And they've done the same at Saratoga and at Belmont over the summer meets where some horses, they didn't die because they fractured a leg. They died of colic or an infectious disease or something along those lines. <clears throat> so, well, Lisa, you know, the comment I want to make is I think you are spot on with that. Is that, you know, my background in, in, in this, not totally academic, but I don't think anybody's established a root cause or causes of the deaths. I, I, I just sense that we're just focused on a couple of solutions uh, that are probably represent a, an important part, but I'm not sure we really totally understand the depth of it. Um, and, and I think that's a sad part of the way we're handling the problem. And frankly, it's my, my one opinion is that I think, I think if we really, we really got at the root causes, a good example is we, this year is the, uh, university of Arizona program. If you look at the, that they do every year, the symposium on racing and weight and, and, uh, in, in the United States, all the panels really focused on, on almost singularly on, on safety and, and track safety and medication. And, and, and not that they're not important, but are there not mm-hmm. other causes that we should be concerned about? Right. Uh, is the question I keep asking. Right. And I have a theory. I read it somewhere before with, as to fracture. Um, and I've noticed a lot of horses like Russian, Barbaro, Eight Bells had native dancer through their dam. Horses who had native dancers through their sire never seemed to have any problems. Interesting, interesting. I didn't see that, but I'll comment it. I don't know, are you familiar with, with a, a website called Thoroughcap? They're, they're no. out of Arkansas. They're out of Arkansas Hot Springs. Um, and they did an article on breeding and did and sort of got at that kind of piece of you know what? What lineage lend itself more to uh, breakdowns, and was there any? And I know that they came mm-hmm. up with a conclusion that I would want to establish as the conclusion, but I thought it was an interesting hypothesis they were working off of. Yeah, and that I might have, I might have read something similar to that after Eight Bells broke down in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. I think Mongolian Groom had Native Dancer through Raisin Native on his body uh-huh. pedigree. And you know, and then we get into the politics of the game. I mean, let let let's be honest, and and and, and be, now we're talking about it. Is it? You know, <clears throat> a lot of folks industry have a lot of their money tied up in a bloodline that leads to to what you're talking about, and. They're not going to want to change because they've got so much mm-hmm. money committed to that that part of the bloodline and that breeding program and program. And uh, you know, similarly, they've even said that was a discussion and across many people in the industry. When you tried to go to synthetic, a lot of the pushback was from the people that didn't have horses that that were bred well to run on the synthetic, and and they didn't right. want to change. 
Uh, and so uh, Brian mentioned earlier about the, the multiple jurisdictions. You know, I add another component, the multiple silos of, of self-interest that the industry has. There's so mm-hmm. many people that just don't want to change because their entire uh, dollars are tied up in it. And you can imagine if, if somebody, I won't even just make up an example, if somebody spent 25 or $30 million on a, on a stud, only to find out that the data showed that the data show that that, that particular uh, lineage or that particular pedigree was lending itself more to to breakdowns that would mm-hmm. make their business basically evaporate right and, and how, they couldn't put up with that so are they really willing to to go down that path for for fear of the answer they're going to get i think that's a serious question i'm not sure we all want to ask and answer those questions Mm-hmm. Although I, I, mean, think I think we might you're, be, you were getting to it at the beginning. Yeah, I, I think we might be selling some of these horses short because, as we saw over the summer with American Pharaohs, uh, two-year-olds, they those those foals can run on anything, grass, yep. dirt. <laughs> they, yep. they they aren't particular. Yep. And so it, you know that. Give it a shot; they might surprise you. That's right. But go back, go back to the because you're getting at the causation, and I want to talk about the scientific models of you know how do you how do you do an analysis? And you know if you look at the equine injury database that was set up, and I applaud that; I think it's a great idea. But it's totally voluntary. If if a right. track does not want to report, they don't have to report, and it goes back to the jurisdictions. If somebody doesn't want to report to the database, they don't have to report. They don't have to report small injuries. They only got to report certain things, and it's all voluntary. And so, how, what, how, what kind of scientific analysis can you do when you don't have a randomization of, of pools that you can a randomized model you can use to to do, to do your statistical analysis from? If it's all selective and voluntary, Brian probably Correct. knows more about that from his medical science background. But I mean that that that's a, a weakness of any study that tries to look at at, 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 a, at a selective population. Right. And in the long run, it would end up providing a wealth of information that could be used yeah. to improve. Absolutely. The, the vet care and, and the vetting of horses prior to races, you know, after races, during training, during the off season. Um, you know, maybe we should give them little vacations because some horses like California Chrome ran 2014, was supposed to run in Europe in 2015, but was ill. He got time off. He went back to TaylorMade, and his 2016 season was phenomenal mm-hmm. with that with that year off and that time to just be a horse. Well, you guys, you got you and Brian were talking about Calumet Farms. Uh, you know, back in the heyday of those type of farms, if a horse came up lame or minor problem, they sent him back to the farm to rest. Mm-hmm. You know, they let him heal and re- rehabilitate and get ready to come back. So, uh, I, I, you know, I think our problem, and I, I really hate to say this, but I, I think our, 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 our syndication problem, our partnership problem was a, really a good thing for racing because it brought a lot of people into the game. But I think what it also did is it brought a lot of people who weren't able to 
the model and wanted to see their horse run a lot and win a lot in order to right. pay the bills. Where the model that we saw in the in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, that was not an issue. It was mostly very wealthy people who owned the horses. They raced them, mm-hmm. and they could put them back on the farm, and they didn't care. But right now, right. I don't think that some of the syndicates, uh, I belong to a syndicate. We have some horses in New York. And I know some of the part and some of the people that are members of the syndicate on, on Facebook and, 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 and email are just complaining that they're not running enough, we're not doing enough, we got to get them, drop them down, we got to run them more, we got to get them to win. Come on, you know, put the horse first, as Brian said in the very beginning, put the horse first uh, mm-hmm. would, 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 would solve a lot of our problems. Right. I don't, baby, I'm stepping on, uh, Brian, am I stepping on your, 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 your speech there? No, no, I mean, you've pretty much, uh, I mean, you, you kind of definitely hit on a couple of things. I think one thing that you, you've lost is, and I, I think you're getting fatigue on all, all aspects of the industry. There really is no racing quote unquote season anymore where, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, they raced up until maybe, you know, the December-ish or whatever, and mm-hmm. then they were given time off. It was, you know, they were given two or three months off, and then they kind of ramped back up in, um, you know, in in the late spring uh, for some of them. If it was the Derby Trail, obviously a little bit earlier. But, you know, now you, you, you see some of the bigger-named horses, maybe they get a little bit of that. But when you have races, you know, like the Pegasus and then, you know, this new Saudi Cup and then the Dubai World Cup, mm-hmm. uh, and that's coming right after the Breeders' Cup, and then, you know, there really is no downtime for racing anymore. And it, it, I think it leads to fatigue of the horses. Um, I think it leads to fatigue yeah. of the fans as well. Um, oh. You know, no other major sport runs 12 months a year. Uh, you know, there's downtime right. for the athletes. And, and again, from an economic model standpoint, that may not completely make sense or, or is viable. But uh, you look, you know, there's less thoroughbreds being born every year or, you know, it's it's – stabilizing out now a little bit, but definitely less than there were five or ten years ago, and they're still trying to fill as many races, and you just can't do that. I mean, you know, something's got to give somewhere, and right now it's it's the health of the horse that's that's suffering um, probably because of it, because you're pushing a horse to try to make races it really shouldn't, and I do agree. I, I do think some of the syndicates that have come in, it's they're looking for a very quick return on their investment. Um, right. And, uh, you know, when you have more of these you know, bringing in the younger generation, I mean, that's what they, you know, especially if they have a, a stock broker background or whatever, they're not looking for a return four or five years down the line. They're, you know, looking for that two-year-old that's going to win a couple of stakes and is going to give them an immediate return on that investment. And, you know, it's, I, I think it puts pressure on everybody when that's really not, it, it's not the best way to go about developing a horse. Um you know, to race long term. I mean, California Chrome is a perfect example um, of what can happen when, you know, you do let a horse fully mature to be four, five, six years old and run. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they can be really, uh, you know, really powerful. And, and I think a lot of people, even the casual fan, doesn't realize that a, a racehorse really doesn't fully mature into their 100% top potential until they are four or five years old. It's, uh, right. But you just, right. you, re- you very rarely see that anymore, so people don't realize that. They Correct. really think they like, you know, three-year-old is like where they peak and then that's it, um, you know, because they're being pushed so hard for the triple crown. But, 
uh, you know, it's. Uh, I think people just don't realize that. But again, some of that is the economics of the game. Is they want to, they want to be able to win a couple of those quick stakes races. And I mean, now it, it kind of blows my mind. I mean, you're seeing these stud deals announced for horses midway through their two-year-old season, and that's just. I mean, mm-hmm. that was unheard mm-hmm. of even five years ago. It's, yep. you know, so it, the pressure is on basically to retire them as almost as quickly as you can to get your, your biggest return on investment. And it's like, you know, you're racing to breed. You're not breeding to race anymore. And I think right. also the point, Brian, that goes with that is, and you can go to the trainers, is that back in that era of the 30s and 40s, you had a lot of, most of, well, a lot of the trainers were private trainers. They worked for the big farms. They worked for the big, the big barns. Now we got a lot more public trainers. That really have to rate, have to have state, have to have enough horses and race frequently to pay their bills. Uh, mm-hmm. And then whenever you talk about, well, we might shut down winter racing in New York, the biggest outcry comes from the, from the horsemen, because you're saying I'm going to take away three months of your work. You can't, you can't do that to me. I've got to run. I got to make money. And 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 uh, you know, so that's the other side of it. Even at the, at the lower end of it, you know. Uh, and, and it's again that silo model, that, the siloism, if you will, that everybody's got their own self-interest, and there, and that's why we'll get at later in the talk about the need for national leadership, because that's what's really, I think, the bottom line here, is that you know you, right now it's it's everybody pushing for themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. That's one. That's my opinion, at least. I I agree. I think you know that it does. We need to make it. Make some changes to make it better for everybody in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I think that's. You know, I think that's one of the biggest things. Is you know, it's unfortunate, but the sport is going to contract. Um, just the sheer numbers. You know, it's going to contract. There's going to be less races, at least for the short term. There's going to be less horses available, and people unfortunately are going to be squeezed out in that situation and nobody wants to see it, but you know, it's, it's just a, it's an inevitability and you know, the, the track or the organization that really kind of tries to recognize that and, and be proactive in the way that they change the, the quicker things are going to turn around. But I, you know, I, I get it from the horseman's groups perspective, which is they're advocating for their horsemen. So it's, you know, right. they don't want to see anybody lose their jobs and you know, that's, that's what they're there to advocate. I understand for, that. I'm certain, certain, being you know, certain trainers, they, they're going to, you know, unfortunately lose their, stable, you know, their stables. And, that, you know, it, it comes to a, a thing of, you know, you, you bring in the whole thing and then of the super trainers and the ones that have the huge stables and should they be allowed to have that many. And um, But, again, mm-hmm. there's really no way to necessarily regulate that. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it is going to be an issue where the sport's going to contract before it gets, you know, before hopefully it starts growing again. And it's going to be – a painful thing and it's just until the industry realizes that it's it's going to have to happen and it's going to have to be hopefully as short a term of pain thing as possible uh before it it gets better but the longer they keep trying to just stretch this the worse the pain is going to be in the long run and the more you fight it the worse it's going to be yep mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that's uh, true i think it's a if, if you could just kind of sit down and you know, there's an old, there's a sort of thinking about in, in collaborative governing, which we do, I'll talk about that a little later, but in collaboration, in mediation, is you try to find your interests, not your positions. You know, my position is I want this, but what are your interests here? Well, your overall interests are, let's make the sport healthy and we'll all, we'll all benefit from that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
when when you're when you're locked into positions, you know this is the way I want it, and I, and I don't care how you want it. This is the way I want it. I don't know that you, you're ever going to get to a solution quickly. Right. And there are so many factors, you know, because um, with especially with social media. I mean, I've read some very negative things about uh, Bob Baffert on social media that are probably not even true. Um, you know, different trainers get these, I guess, a, a, a reputation. Uh, Mr. Hollendorfer. Mm-hmm. Right now seems to be the, the, the whipping boy. He's been... <laughs> Sent a band from tracks, and um, I'm not quite sure what the issues were, but it started it, it at Santa of, Anita. And yeah, I, you know, it's it, I don't think anybody knows 100% the truth in, in the Hollendorfer situation. I mean, the big thing was it appeared that of all the breakdowns, you know, that Santa Anita was going through and California was going through his horses were represented at a higher percentage. Um, and depending on what, again, depending on whose tale you believe in, in information, you know, he was supposedly approached by it and basically said, I'm still going to train my way. And, you know, I, you know, I don't care about what protocols you guys okay. are putting in place, but I'm going to still do, you know, I'm not really adapting anything to my, and they said, well, if you're not going to try to work with us a little bit, we're not going to invite you to come racing. So it's, they, again, the, the, the truth probably lies somewhere between the two extremes on it, but um, it, it does. The reputation supposedly he has is that he's, you know, not been very approachable about any of this, not been very amenable to changing anything, but um, you know, still claims that you know he he checks over every single one of his horses every day and um, and uh, you know, obviously you know takes as good as care as possible. He also you know, deals with, and this goes to, a, you know, a, a slightly lower caliber of horse. I mean, he's, you know, much more active in the claiming game than some of the bigger trainers like the Baffords or the O'Neills and, and things like that. So those types of horses usually do end up having more potential medical issues that, you know, some trainers try to patch together to get one or two more races out of um, uh, to either try to get okay. the claim so that they can recoup some money off of it or, uh, you know, at least try to get a little bit of purse money for the owners before they have to retire. Okay. And, and again, that, that would know, be sometimes... something something a national um, a national organization would be able to. Yeah, potentially look over, um, you know, or set national rules for. Uh, you know, there's been some talk, which I, I think would be an interesting approach from some folks of saying, you know, one thing that might solve a lot of the issues with racing, or at least on the lower end, is doing away with the claiming game altogether and, and modeling mm-hmm. it more after the kind of like the handicap system they have in Europe where they kind of grade horses based on their ability and only horses that fit into a certain classes are allowed to race against that caliber of horse. So it's sort of similar to, you know, kind of spotting your horses today, but it's a little bit more nationally governed saying that no your horse only can fit into this specific 
um, class of race, but it takes away what it does is with no claiming they don't basically don't have claiming races over in Europe. Um, there's not that impetus for a, a trainer to try to push a horse for one more race in the hopes that it will get claimed or something like that. Um, you know, it's it's kind of it. If, if you still want to sell your horse, you certainly can do that, but you're not doing it through trying to race them. Um, and uh, it it kind of it's it's an interesting concept. It, I I don't know if it would ever actually take off in the U.S., but um, you know, it, it's certainly something I think that bears looking into. Uh, where, you know, because a lot of them, when you get to these lower-level claiming races at these, you know, second- and third-tier tracks, you you have some of these horses that are running every, you know, seven to ten days sometimes, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's, you know, just too much on them. They're, you know, eventually they are going to break down, and some of them just, that's just the way some of these trainers operate is, you know, they they just race them and work them until they can't do it anymore, and, you know, then they just bring another one into the barn, so... Um, Right, having having a certain having a way where you you do away with that claiming pressure to to get away from that just one more race mentality might be something that will you know would help. Again, it probably would take something that would take you know a, a national overseeing body to to totally you know reconfigure. Well, I think it's interesting. Exactly. You know, Tim Tim Ritvo when they first had the problems at Santa Anita, uh, you know, was quoted as saying, you know, maybe we're we're making this too much about a business and not enough about a sport. And, and, you know, he just made that comment. And, and I thought that, you know, he's a horseman who understands the game. Uh, now he's also an executive. But, you know, I think that there's a lot a lot to that statement. You know, if we kind of try to apply that, um, many we, we may get a lot more uh, benefit out of it if we realize it, it's about the sport um, mm-hmm. and, and not just the business. It's, because I think Brian's right. And, you know, that, that's what happens. And, and I think a lot of, you know, I mean, I, I – I think about it a lot of times, you know, when you, if you're if you're a farmer, you know, your animals are are your are your machinery. They're part of your your workforce. You know, they're there to make you money. You know, they cows or animals or whatever they're breeding, they're running, they're plowing, whatever they're doing. You know, the chickens and stuff. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes some people see that in horses much too much. You know, it doesn't make any difference what we do. We just got to make them make money for us because they're a part of the machine. Um, mm-hmm. And that may be an ideology, a, a mentality that we need to change. Right, and that could be a factor in the percentage of the higher percentage of fracture deaths. Of course, physiolo- physiology of the horse—they um, don't do well on three legs. <laughs> they don't do well standing still. Um, they can't lay down, so them healing from a fracture can have complications that you wouldn't see in a dog or a cat or a human. I think Brian said that earlier. You're exactly right. Yeah, it's yeah. you know, it's uh, it, it's very. They're like I said, some things that they've come up with. They have, they have come up with these kind of harness suspension apparatuses that, for periods of time, can can kind of suspend them a little bit to take some of the weight off. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of times it's it, there's two main factors when you deal with kind of the lower limb or the ankle or fetlock fractures that we look at in horses. And the first of which obviously is if there's, you know, there's certain blood vessels that run down into the hoof and, and through that area. And if during a dislocation or a fracture of that area, those blood vessels are obliterated or destroyed, no amount of 
hardware or casting or things like that is going to be able to save that because you need that blood supply to promote healing. And so that's one thing that immediately, anytime a horse suffers a, a major injury to a, a fetlock or the ankle, um, that's one of the first things the vets will look for is does it look like there's an intact blood supply there or something they can work with. Um, and even if there is and, and they you know, have made strides in a lot of kind of joint fusion surgeries and a lot of orthopedic plates and screw surgeries, you know, that's really only the first step in in a very long process of, of hopeful recovery. And I think, you know, a lot of uh, fa- just casual fans and even people that follow it don't realize that, that it's not like with a person where like, oh, okay, well, I broke my ankle, but they plated it, you know, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, all I got to do is just stay off for a little while. For a horse, it's it's nowhere near the same thing. It's uh, uh, You really sometimes only start worrying once the surgery is over. Um, and you're just hoping that the horse doesn't develop complications such as infection or what we call laminitis, um, which is an inflama- a really painful inflammation of the hoof uh, happening in one or all four feet, which, which can be fatal. There's just so many things that can happen. Um, and that was kind of, you know, the situation with Barbaro when he went through surgery was the surgery went fine. Um, and it looked like he finally was on the way to recovery. And then, you know, all of a sudden, even that far out developed laminitis. And, uh, unfortunately there was nothing that, that, that could be done. So right. it's, uh, it's, it's a real, you know, uh, you're walking on eggshells for a long period of time when, when you're dealing with these injuries. Right. And I, I think something that, that a lot of people don't, don't realize or or know is that in any decision to euthanize an animal it comes down to what is the quality of their life going to be are they going to be pain free are they going to have to live in a cage because they can't manage their pain with normal activity are they going to have to take medications to manage pain and you don't want to subject any any animal, pet, a horse, any animal to that kind of pain over an extended period of time or sometimes the treatment that can be painful. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and in, in, in we as veterinarians, I mean, we try to give owners, you know, a percentage or a prognosis as best we can, and it, it Sometimes it's clear cut. You know, we can look at that and say there's no blood supply there, or there's absolutely nothing we can do here, and that makes the decision easy. Um, sometimes it's it's not as cut and dry, and and you know sometimes you have to kind of work with the owners of these horses and say, you know, okay, we're going to try this. Um, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure that we can keep them comfortable and pain free, and uh, you know through the procedure and all that, but you know it's going to be a day to day thing for a while, and you know it still may not have a positive outcome. Um, but sometimes it also also just comes down to economics. Um, right. uh, not every racehorse is insured. Um, you know, some are. Some of the more you know higher end stakes ones are. Or sometimes a person just you know has insurance on their horse. But you know these surgeries and 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 uh, even if it's not you know uh, you're not even talking about just necessarily fractures here, but a colic surgery or something like that, you're easily talking ten fifteen thousand dollars and. Not mm-hmm. everybody has that that kind of money, and and for a major surgery, um, you know, to repair a, a fetlock fracture or something like that, or a fusion, you, you could be talking fifteen, twenty thousand just for the surgery alone, and then another maybe ten thousand in in just you know follow up care and 
and uh, medical costs and things like that. So it's, you know, there's an economic aspect to it that we wish wasn't involved, but sometimes it is, and uh, that certainly can play a role in the racing game, um, and especially at the lower level tracks with some of these, you know, older horses that are just, you know, kind of the old warrior horses that uh, don't have any insurance with them, and, and their owners don't have a lot of money to to be able to put that mm. money into their care. Right. But, and on another another issue, I've I've seen um, at I think Saratoga there were a couple of horses who apparently had circulatory or heart issues uh, during the meet last summer. Um, they were lumped in to deaths at racetracks, but horses can have undiagnosed asymptomatic circulatory heart lung issues that no one ever knew about that can lead to a sudden death. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, we do see that, you know, not super frequently, but it, it certainly is something that I think people need to understand a little bit more is that horses, just like people or dogs and cats, they can have arrhythmias, they can have heart rhythm disturbances, um, you know, they can on rare occasions work themselves just to a state of complete exhaustion where their body just gives out. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times, yeah, those types of um uh, heart rhythm disturbances just go undetected. You know, the, the horse is not showing any visible signs of having it, and it's only under the severe exertion of racing sometimes that it just causes such a severe, uh, you know, it exacerbates the condition, um, or they develop it. You know, it, it's an intermittent thing, and it just happens to develop, you know, after they're done racing um, for the race. And then it, it usually, if it's going to happen to them, we find, at least or I've seen, it happens more more often than not after the race is over, so after they've you know, put out the the fourth, the the maximum effort. Um, And again, it can be, uh, you know, a fatal arrhythmia. Um, It can be a rupture of a a major vessel in the lung, which is different than the whole bleeding issue in horses that, you know, is currently debated so much with Lasix. This is where just a really large pulmonary vessel ruptures, um, and they bleed out fairly quickly from it. Um, But yeah, a, a lot of these are lumped together, and it's, you know, it's important and you know, a lot of the, it's interesting because if you listen to what some of the tracks say when they say, when they're questioned about, well, why aren't you reporting your data to the the database or why aren't you making your data public? It's a lot of them say, well, it's because it's going to be misconstrued by the public and they're not going to understand. It, to me, that's kind of a cop-out because, you know, if, if that's going to be your argument, well, then it's on you to have your track vet or a veterinarian or somebody get up there and break it out and explain it. Mm-hmm. Um you know, just put it out there and say, look, this is what these were due to this. These were due to this. You know, we're still waiting on certain test results for some of these, um, you know, and, and explain it to the public. Now, you're going to get that the percentage of the ones that just want racing abolished, they're not going to care no matter what. Um, you know, there's, there's no convincing them. And, and you see that in the way some of them, the way they kind of cherry pick these necropsy reports just for the, the sentence or the terms that they want. And then when you go through right. and read the whole thing, it's like, well, no, that's not what what's going on here. You're just, you know, you're twisting the words of the report. Um, but it's really on the tracks and and the commissions at that point to put it out there and to say this is what we know. This is in layman's terms what happened. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest frustrations in what's going on in California right now is nobody can really get their hands on anything 
to really see what happened with a lot of those that rash of breakdowns that happened last spring because the the criminal or at least what they're calling the criminal investigation was still wrapping up so uh, oh, even the okay. vets could not get their hands on the necropsy reports to see what's going on we were supposed to have that report right at least kind of like the examples of what happened to those horses and, and descriptions uh by now but now it's going to be delayed at least until the middle of january so we're all kind of waiting to see what that is and i mean that was why i put out one of the videos just on exactly what a necropsy is and what it shows and the parts of it because mm -hmm. um you know some people were saying well couldn't there be other people to witness the necropsy when it was being done and I, you know i was just like oh those are usually done within 24 hours of when the horse breaks down or is euthanized so it's uh mm -hmm. um you know so it's 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 a quick procedure that, that's done relatively quickly in order to get the best tissue samples and, and best, hopefully, explanation as to what right, happened. Right. But uh, it's, it's uh, you know it takes it's education. an animal autopsy. Yep. It's an much. animal and autopsy. It, and it, and it, it takes the the time for for the education to be put out there as to what it is. I you know they're right. not. It's not an easy topic to understand if you're not trained in it, and it's it's just a matter of you don't need to know the details down to the cellular level or the the, the complete physiologic aspects of it, but just explaining it in layman's terms you know we find people understand it um you know a lot better even when mm -hmm. mongolian groom um uh broke down in the, in the breeders cup i felt that nbc and they could have been under time constraints i don't know because i was watching the track feed i wasn't watching the nbc broadcast but i thought the vets there or whatever there was a huge missed opportunity for for education because to my understanding they just said well he was put in the van and now they're going to reassess it's like well explain that a little bit further just say that he mm -hmm. had the splint put on to stabilize the leg and then he's going to have x-rays done and then they're going to look at the x-rays and see and it just seemed like that aspect of the education part was not put in there and uh and so people just assume that because the tarps went up the horse was euthanized on the track which really wasn't the track the right <laughs> and i i remember that and um the same thing that happened with Burrow Boy on the last day at Saratoga. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where Fox Sports didn't tell anybody what was going on. Um, but you know what? I, I can speaking, I work in personal, plaintiff's personal injury. I've worked in personal injury defense, insurance defense. And when you have a corporate entity, they're always worried about liability. Oh, sure. And they're always worried that anything they say can and will be used against them in a lawsuit. And that I tends to breed the corporate secrecy. Yep, yep. I think one of the things that Brian was getting at with the vets is, is I've had same conversations with – I've had conversations with some of the stewards – uh, one and without giving a name at Saratoga and said, you know, when, when when you make a decision, why don't you come on the monitor, you know, come on a television, tell all the fans exactly why you made that decision. Uh, and you don't hardly ever do that. They, at best, they leave it to the to the public address announcement to tell people what happened, but they don't let the people who really know the facts explain it to the public. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the public won't understand. But that I, you think that, but that's not really the issue. I had this one steward tell me. You know, none of us want to have our face identified. We want to get out of that steward box and get in a car and get out of, out of town because uh, the betters are going to be mad at us. If we tell them what we did or why we disqualified somebody, they're going to be mad at us. And, you know, we feel that, that we're not safe. 
I, I couldn't believe that answer right. when I got that from somebody. You know, it's like, wait a minute. So we don't want to tell the public what went on because we're afraid. Well, why, yeah. why don't we just have more transparency? And I'm not shooting for over-transparency because I think you have a point about litigation. It's a legitimate one. But at least be honest. Explain things more. Right. The public is smarter than you think. They'll appreciate it. Most and, people understand it if you explain it to them. And Well, and we have um, – we had with the uh, disqualification of maximum security in the Kentucky yep. Derby – but we had the commentators reviewing and, and kind of doing the steward's explanation for them of saying, you know, he did cross out of his lane and he did interfere and impede other horses. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's the reason for the call. Some didn't agree. Some did agree. But, yeah, I mean, a, a steward explaining or a proxy for the stewards. With a piece of paper saying, I'm the proxy, don't shoot me. And then explaining the stores made their decision because. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and but there's, also, it, you know, there's also going, there's credibility. I mean, if a steward says that people will believe him, when an announcer says that you don't know whether it's it's coming from the track or what they're doing. So I, or I he's guessing. Point. He's guessing. That's right. He's trying to fill the airtime. He's explaining it. You know, I don't know uh-huh. if it's true or not, but, you know, there's a credibility. And it's just like if a veterinarian stood up and explained something in front of the public on, on, on the screen, I think people would understand it and would appreciate it more because of credibility. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, and know. I, I think with some with some of that, even just, and I, you know, I've said this, you know, even just at the start of the race program, just have a steward get up there and say, look, this is the rule that we're following. When yep. it, Mm-hmm. To, you know these things. So yeah, I think sometimes the public thinks like, well, they're just doing this art. It's like, no, they're they're trying to apply the rule that is in place. So it's, you know, it can be the same thing as you know, uh, I deal with it sometimes in animal abuse cases. Is you know, we're looking at trying to apply a standard, and the person may not necessarily be trying to be cruel or something like that, or even it may not, you know, it what we see may look really egregious, but when I look at it, it's like, well, unfortunately, it doesn't rise to the level of the rule, and it's sort of the same thing there with this is what, you know, we have to go off of, this is what we're basing our decision on, and this is the rule, and this is what we have to follow, and that, and if they do that at the beginning, saying this is the rule we're trying to apply, of course, n- not everybody's going to be happy. I mean, you know, everybody thinks they can do a steward's job, but I, I'm sure that, you know, I wouldn't want it, and you know, most of them would be in a different position if they were, were in that position. But um, it, it it is something, I think, where, again, it just comes down to better education. And it's something that the tracks can do very easily and very inexpensively, and they just seem to have this incredible reluctance to do that for some reason. Right. Yep. I but I think they have, to re- they have to remember we are now in the instant information age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest backlashes I saw over the summer when Borough Broy boy broke down. Fox didn't say anything. They didn't tell us what was going on. They just went off the air. And people were very upset that nobody said, nobody even identified the horse. Yeah, and, I think that comes to, you know, again, I it's, it's not really like a head in the sand mentality, but it's kind of like, don't talk about it and people won't won't think about it. Um, and I think it's because they're they're always trying to portray a positive image of racing, and if they focus on that, well, then it just draws more attention. But I, I do think you can much more easily balance that out. You know, it, that shows right. you're actually caring about the horse and the one that went down, and 
you know, all that. You don't have to dwell on it, but you at least have to kind of, you know, mention it in, in mm-hmm. some way, shape, or form. And, uh, you know, it's 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 a really hard thing, I think, for people to to accept. And we we talk about, you know, well, you never really should accept any death in racing, but it's going, no matter how safe you try to make things, no matter how perfect you try to make things, there's going to be horses that die in racing. It's Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to see it, and nobody's hoping for that to happen. And yeah, we're all working to make that as little as possible. But if the if the number, if the only number that's acceptable as far as horse deaths for people is zero, you're at a non-starting point because it, you know that's just it's, a, it's a physical impossibility. And you know that's like turning around and saying the same thing. Well, you know, is the number of of deaths acceptable in any other sport zero? Because then you wouldn't have sports. Uh, you know, it, it just you know, it, it, they, they wouldn't exist. So it's, um, it's a tough, it's a tough, you know, conversation. But I think with education and, and more transparency, yeah, you're going to still face people that, you know, no matter what, are going to come down on you because of it. But you just have to accept that that's their opinion, and unfortunately, they're not going to change it. But you've got 80% of the population you probably still can sway, um, and and make them realize this is what truly is going on. Uh, and, and making things, you know, better from that perspective. Right. And, you know, like I said, Burrow Boy, they could have said, we don't know right now. He's being evaluated. And, you know, as soon as we know, we'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it was very, it was the last race of the day, and it was very close to the end of the the Fox Sport programming. Um, but it, it's something to, people, that, I, you know, want to know. Lisa, I was in the stands when yeah. that happened. Oh, okay. I, right in, I had the clubhouse. I'm in the club. I have the clubhouse seats every day at Saratoga, and I was sitting there when that happened. For the last, watch the last race before, every year before they leave, and I watched it happen. You're right. Mm-hmm. You're and it was really, it was very sad. I mean, I I gasped when I when I saw it, and mm-hmm. I just kept hoping that he just stumbled. Mm-hmm. And um, but then I realized when I didn't see him finish with everyone else, I realized that he uh, was injured. And I think mm-hmm. the jockey was injured as well. I don't remember. I think you're right, but I'm not sure. Yeah. So, uh, and then of course another another thing with horses is their digestive systems. Um, they don't regurgitate. Correct, Dr. Langlois? Correct, yep. Yeah, so really, um, you know, movement is only designed to go in, in one direction, and we kind one. of, we, we joke that, you know, when Mother Nature designed the horse, my God, did she, I don't, we don't know if she was drunk or hungover or well, what, because I have, it's just like, it's not meant to, like, it, you just look at it from a physiologic standpoint, and it's like, you're surprised more of them don't suffer severe colic issues. I have said that they are one of, as a, from an engineering standpoint, they are one of the most poorly designed creatures because mm-hmm. they're this big barrel on top of little four little spindly legs with a big old head <laughs> and bones in their legs that are, you know, the size of my fingers. Yep. And a lot of and bones some of in that, their legs. You know, from the from the leg standpoint, that's something that. I think if you're looking at tying a lot of things to breeding, that is something that breeding has really pushed for. Because um, you look at the horse's back, you know, even in the 70s and 80s, 
their bone structure was much better. Um, but what happened was as the shift in dynamics of what, what owners wanted and what buyers wanted at sales, they wanted more of the precocious, very fast horses um, that were very fast as two-year-olds. And when they were, as they started to breed for that, the side effect was they were developing a weaker bone structure um, for their legs. So, um, and, and so, you know, that's something I think that breeding has definitely shown, uh, you know, to, to be an issue. So the, the leg issues, you know, uh, as far as being thinner and, and, and not as strong, I, I think a lot of that is, is pushing, uh, you know, genetic preference um, on that, you know, quicker return on investment for, for more precocious, faster mm-hmm. horses. Um, and if you look at it, I mean, it's that's kind of what the sire lines dominate with today, is all of the really stamina-influencing um, or stamina-type sires in a lot of ways. They're being bought up and, you know, being shipped over to Europe and, and even Japan. I mean, they're, you know, those are the more of the type of sires that they're interested in as compared to the speed-orientated sires. But, uh, but yeah, the, the, you know, their digestive systems are... It, it, you know, it's just, it's colic is not a fun thing for a horse, and uh, right. uh, you know, fortunately, modern medicine really has uh, made tremendous strides in that area to be able to identify and and find things quickly, and and usually, you know, if surgical correction is needed, come through uh, for these horses. But still, yeah, colic, you know, is is a major concern um, on the racetrack for for all horses, but especially horses that are, you know, under the stress of a racing life. Right, and it can happen type of food, but it can also happen with overeating. Overeating, um, it can happen just if they roll the wrong way sometimes. Um, okay. You know, you look at actually maximum security, what he had, the, the nephrosplenic entrapment. Um, that was just a case of where part of his large intestine popped up over something where it shouldn't have been. Um, you know, and it just took a little while for that to, to slide. You know, they were able to work some some stuff with them when they realized he was just uncomfortable and slide it back down to where it should have been. But yeah, I mean, a horse can, you know, twist something or get something caught up in their abdomen by as simple as just rolling in their stall. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just something that unfortunately they can be prone to developing, but yeah, it definitely eating can uh, overeating, uh, eating the wrong thing. Um, they, they think there is some link. A lot of racehorses have, uh, gastric ulcers. Um, mm-hmm. uh, partly they think from the way that they're fed or, or their diet, um, but partly also from just the stress of, of being racehorses at times. So um, they're okay. looking into that now and, and changing their feeding uh, patterns and structure and stuff like that um, to maybe help a little bit with that. But all of that can contribute to colic, and uh, it's 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 a it's a nasty thing for a horse to have to go through. Mhm. Yeah. And. Uh... And unfortunately, sometimes you can save them, but sometimes there's just nothing you can do. No, it's uh, they can, like I said, it, it kind of depends on the, there's so many different types of colic out there. But if they do suffer a severe impaction uh, where something blocks their intestine or if something twists to the point of where they lose blood supply to a good portion of their gut, um, mm-hmm. there's just, you know, even with the best surgery and best medical care, um, there's sometimes nothing you can do. And again, as I kind of mentioned a little bit before, sometimes economics play into it as well um you know if if uh colic surgery is is uh quite expensive and, and sometimes owners just can't afford it and well while that's kind of a sad thing to see it's i mean it's a reality of life we, we see it both on the large animal and the small animal side so mm-hmm. um you know it's it's best to if you can't provide the proper care at least to alleviate their suffering 
Right. Exactly. And then we have infectious diseases, which uh, Fairgrounds had a, a, I can't remember what it was now, an equine. Uh, probably the EAT one, the herpes virus. Yes, that one. And um, those go through barns. And um, there's also one in Asia where repatriated stallions have to be able to either breed to prove they don't have it, or be gelded. Yeah, it, it, there's different. Um, I don't know if I'd have to look up to see if that's the case with actual equine herpes virus. Um, but the, the big thing, uh, EHV, like herpes virus, there's multiple forms of it, and um, you know, there's one that causes just kind of more. I guess common cold would be a better way of describing it, but it's something that. You know, this time of year, especially when it's uh, colder out and more more the winter months, we see it. Um, the major concern is that there's a specific strain of it that is a neurologic form that actually can be deadly for horses. Um, but EHV, regardless, is very, very contagious and very easily spread. So mm-hmm. as soon as a case is identified, yeah, that whole barn has to go on quarantine um, until they're shown to be testing, you know, negative for it. Because it, it just it can get on any surface. It's very easily spread, and um, you know obviously can affect horses. And we worry if if all of a sudden this one turns out to be more of a neurologic strain, um, right? Uh, then you you know then you have some you know real major concerns, and the quarantine issues get further. And you know that's why you see some of the shipping restrictions put on certain barns um, or even racetracks, where they'll say they won't accept entries from a certain track until they're deemed. Um, to be cleared by that by that track state vet, so uh, it can be you know it can be crippling both from a health standpoint and an economic standpoint for the for the industry because if you get huge outbreaks, horses basically can't you know they they can't ship they can't run uh, they're basically mm-hmm. just kind of you know staying in their stalls until uh, until the the quarantine orders have been lifted. Right, and that that happened at fairgrounds last year, I believe, and it's got a it's got a like two week incubation period. Yep, and that's why they that that's really the the annoying thing with it sometimes is you have to go through that two weeks and let's say you get to day 13 and all of a sudden then one of the horses in the barn does test positive then well then your quarantine starts all over again so um right. it can you know it can drag on and on at times and it it does sometimes affect even major stakes races I mean um, two or three years ago Gunrunner was supposed to run in the Pegasus and um, it was the year before he won it. Uh, he was supposed to run in the Pegasus the year Arrogate and Chrome ran in it, but um, because of the mm-hmm. the quarantine at Fairgrounds, um, he couldn't. He wasn't allowed to ship out. So that's the year I was thinking of. I thought it was mm-hmm. last year, but it might have been. Although we may have had another another episode last year because I thought there was a Kentucky Derby horse that um was a maybe because he was at Fairgrounds and. There might have been, like I said, we see them. It's it's not uncommon to see a, a quarantine on a barn, especially in the winter months. You know, at least two or three quarantines pop up here and there throughout the country. Um, it's just, you know, it, it's just the nature of the virus and, and things like that. And um, usually, especially in the winter, you have closer, usually stabling quarters, um, things like that. So it's, uh, you know, you try to do everything you can to try to prevent it and have good biosecurity measures and all that. But you know, sometimes there's just nothing you can do. It's uh, it's something you just mm-hmm. have to accept and, and deal with from time to time. It's like the human flu. Yep. 
So, and um, then another topic that's that's been in the news: uh, crop and whip use. Um, yeah. This now, is... as oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say this is something I think that. It's one of those things you're never going to get 100% consensus on. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's just such a, you know, it, it seems like it, it should be a very cut and dry issue, but um, it, it really, you know, it's. I think there's. It, it some way surprises me that this is the, you know, of all the things in the world you think you could get national consensus on from an industry standpoint, you think it would be, you know, whip and crop usage, but still, it, it, that still doesn't seem to be possible. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens out in California as they've kind of passed the strictest rules so far on it. But I do think the jockeys are being a little bit ignored in this um, and not being allowed to really show or or have their opinion 100% taken, uh, you know, uh, completely in it. But I also, to me... With some of it, I think one of the reasons we've gotten to where we've gotten with with the whip usage is because the penalties really were never strict enough for jockeys that broke the rules with it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you know, if you look again, you know, we compare a lot of stuff to Europe and England, but I, you have rules over there. If a jockey breaks, you know, one of those whip rules, I mean, they're set down and they're set down for a period of mm-hmm. time, and there's no appeal, there's right. no nothing. And I think we've just gotten that the industry has gotten so lax in properly disciplining jockeys that break the crop usage rules, you know, there's no, there's no threat to them not to break it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, if you had those rules and they really stuck to them and said, you know, you break this rule, you're, you're sitting for two weeks and, you know, there's going to be no appeal, no stakes races during that time. I, I think you'd have, you wouldn't have quite as much of an issue as you have with it right now, but it's, uh, it's just right. going to be another one of those those things where um, these horses, uh, you know, the public's not going to stand to see a horse whipped repeatedly in the in, in the stretcher right. at any point anymore. But, and it, you know, the there argument is a safe, there is a safety if the horse is drifting toward the rail, and you tap him on the left side, he's going to move away. Yeah, and and I've seen it, you know, and I, I think that's where the whole crux of this is going to really come in, which is you're now, in addition to everything else the stewards are looking at, you're going to have to put on the stewards' hands, well, was he using the, the, the crop to really just try to maintain a safe course, or was he using the, trying to make it look like that, but he's also trying to get more effort out of his horse? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't think taking the crop completely away from them is going to be the, the way to go, because I do think there is a safety aspect to it. Um but it's, you know, it, it's going to have to probably fall somewhere in between, and I have no idea. This one is going to be really interesting to see if it gets litigated in some way, you know, beyond the commission level, um, you know, where all of a sudden if disqualifications are starting to be put in or, or um, you know, jockeys are really getting suspended for what might be questionable interpretations. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see where it goes as, as far as that goes. But, you know, some of the newer um, uh, crop crop designs, I mean, the one that Ramon Dominguez came in, the 360, with more of like a, a completely cylindrical foam tip, um, mm-hmm. seems to be the safest form out there. But you talk to some jockeys and they say the horses don't respond to it at all. So, right. it, it, you know, it's... Um, 
(laughs) even with the softer, what they call the popper whips now, you know, and and you get the whole thing of saying, you know, oh, well, it doesn't hurt the horse at all. I mean, if you hit a horse enough times with anything, it's going to make make an impression on their skin. And, you know, depending on where you hit them is, is a fact, too. I mean, to sit there and say that the horse doesn't feel it, but you watch horses out in the field and there's a fly that lands on them on a certain part of their flank, they immediately twitch. So mm-hmm. to get it off, so there's a sensation there. I mean, it's it's not a totally benign stimulus to them. Um, so again, right. I think the truth is going to lie somewhere in between, and it's just going to take some time to find where that pendulum ends up. Right. I don't like seeing them, you know, slapping them when they're running down the stretch in the clear, but I understand that they're going the wrong way to kind of, and sometimes it's just showing it to them. Mm-hmm. And, and I think say, that's okay. where sometimes, again, that public perception is off perception. a little bit. So a lot of times when they're just kind of flashing the whip in front of them, you know, to show it to them, to try to get them either to maintain a straight course or just stay focused, everybody assumes every time they're doing that, they're hitting them and they're not. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just appears that way. Um, but yeah, of all the things that, you know, I think public perception is going to play the biggest role in, it's going to be in, in whip usage because just in today's world, nobody wants to see an animal whipped. So, um, you know, I, I think it's going to be a, a thing of where they're going to have really strict, uh, crop usage rules going forward. And, um, you know, it's, it, the, up at Woodbine, they were, they were experimenting with something for two months and the jockey, some jockeys didn't have a problem with the change. Others said it really messed with the way they rode. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, people, you know, jockeys are just going to have to adapt, I think. it's it's. Uh, I don't think, I can't see them really winning this out uh, in the long run. Um, so I, I think it's going to be, you know, where they're, they're going to have very, very strict uh, whip regulations in place throughout the country eventually. Well, I think it's interesting, Brian, you're, you're talking about that and back to communication and, and with the fans, is it I've never seen any education program or any any uh, media effort on behalf of any racetrack that I've ever gone to where they have jockeys explaining to the fans how the crop is used. I don't people have I don't think 80% of the fans really understand how the crop is used. No. 80% yeah, I think they do. I mean, I you know, I just they they don't and yet Everybody says, oh, they think they're so worried about beating the horse. Why don't we explain to people? What if we think mm-hmm. fans aren't the people? Look, this is why we're using the crop. This is important. Now, if there's somebody abusing it, i go back to your point, Brian. If, if somebody's abusing it, they should be put down. Right? They should be set. They should be penalized for that. But, I mean, uh, I, I saw just this, I think, at Gulfstream, they were at one of the big races this last weekend. They they were having trouble getting the horse in the gate, and the jockey just reached back with his whip and touched the, the back flank of the horse, and he went right in the gate. Mm-hmm. You talk about a fly touch. He just touched him, and it was just enough to make the horse move forward. Didn't want that to touch him there, you know, similar to the shoulder to move him out, you know. There's plenty mm-hmm. of reasons to use it. Just don't abuse it. But I think fans need to learn more about it. I mean, that, that that's one of my, my, my things, too. I think it's important right. to teach fans why, why it's being used. The only oh, yeah, reason I know I that there's a, a a safety, you know, utility for it is Gary Stevens, mm-hmm. Stevens and Jerry Bailey, former jockeys, and and Richard Migliori, who have been commentators on various races that I've watched. 
they who yeah, said, no, you and, know, and there's, like a, said, there's and, a, and they've utility had some, for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you talk to another one who's been a real proponent, um, uh, Ramon Dominguez, he, like I said, he de- he kind of designed that whip, but what he said is what, what even if you showed the evolution of the riding crop, even over the last 15 years, you know, how what they used to look like and then what they've moved to and what they're kind of moving to now, it, it would serve as an education piece to say, you know, if you think this was bad, look at what they used 20 years ago and, you know, and how we've, you know, really realized that that was wrong and we're moving forward and trying to do the right thing, uh, you know, for the horse. But it is, you know, needed. And, you know, if you start, I always bring this up, you know, people that bring it up, well, you know, it's cruel to, to um you know, whip the horses or use the crop and stuff like that. And it's like, well, do you own show jumpers? And they're like, oh, yeah, no, we, we do that. Well, do you have a crop in your hands and use it from time? You know, you can't mm-hmm. – you've almost got to say if the crop is not allowed in racing, you almost got to say the crop can't be used in any equine discipline. And um, I, I think you would, yeah. you know, get much more pushback on that end of it because <laughs> uh, they would argue it's a safety thing or something like that. And, right. All right, gentlemen. Well, I think we are um, we are at ten oh eight, eleven oh eight your time, and uh, Blog Talk gives us an indeterminate period after two hours. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> um, I I have really enjoyed this. After the new year, I would love to have you come back, and we will complete our topic. Okay. Sure. Good Absolutely. Here. I would love, love to have both of you back. Um, this was a very interesting and informative show. Michael is probably sitting there taking notes. <laughs> Michael's sitting here allowing the people who are smart on the subject to talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's it. Thank I'm you. listening. Right. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, I've really enjoyed this, and I will uh, I'll take a look at the schedule and email you both some potential dates after the first of the year. Absolutely. Terrific. Thank that you. And great. We, we will just pick up where we're leaving off tonight. Perfect. Thanks very much, Lisa. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank, Thank you. you, too, and uh, happy holidays to all you guys. Yeah. Thank you, yes. Happy, happy holidays. holidays. You guys Take as care. well. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Stay you. Safe. Take care. Bye. 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 All right, Michael. Hey, I promise I'm here, and I was sitting there listening to all of it, especially I, I almost talked, but, like, legitimately, I just didn't want to, you know, get in the way of the conversation. But, I, you know, uh, when they started talking about hot springs, I really, my ears definitely perked up at that. I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm going to find a video. I'm going to find the video of Zenyatta at Oakland. Yeah, you're going to have to do that because I literally, you know, I've lived here my whole life and I have heard that Oakland is, you know, a pretty. I don't want to say it's, like, important, but it's supposed to be a pretty, you know, it's supposed to be a pretty, you know, influential track. It is, and it's got some influential, I mean, the Arkansas Derby is one of the qualifiers for the uh, Kentucky Derby. Right. And I think right. it's got uh, it's got a couple of races after Triple Crown, um, 
that are pretty in- influential stakes races. I think it may have some some big stakes races for two-year-olds as well. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure there's something. The one I know, obviously, is the Arkansas Derby, and then I think there's one mm-hmm. called the Rebel Stakes or something like that. And yes. That's not the end of my knowledge. Yes. So, But we will, uh, after the first of the year, we'll – We'll have Mr. Amo and Dr. Langwa back, and we will just pick up where we left off because they are really great. Oh yes, absolutely. And I like I like the difference for for the holiday season of not talking about true crime. Somebody get murdered, <laughs> right? Exactly. Right. I was trying not to go there, Michael, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, definitely. I mean, it, it was it was definitely interesting. And, you know, uh, one of the more interesting things that I picked out was the fact that he said, and, you know, I guess I knew this, but it never dawned on me, that there's no governing body for horse racing, which just completely throws mm-hmm. me for a loop because, really, it's the only – and me and you may, you know, certain people may not call it this. Certain people may call it this, but it's the only quote unquote major sport I know of in our country that really doesn't have a governing body. Obviously, you have the NFL, a you have NASCAR, yeah. you have yeah, and right. like they, it even has it even has like its Super Bowl, which I would. Me on the outside, I obviously think it's the Kentucky Derby would probably be their Super Bowl. But, you know, I, it, it's one of those things that it's like, wow, they don't even have a governing body to this. So I guess it's mm-hmm. just whatever anybody wants to do, and it's the Wild West. Well, it's more – it's just there's no there's no consistency because it's each state, the California – California has a board, Kentucky has a board, New York has a board, Pennsylvania has a board, Louisiana has a board, um, Arkansas has a board. I mean, it's it's different. Each state well, I mean, has its own rules and regulations, and so, and and you know, you get into problems where a horse runs at the fairgrounds and then ships to California and turns out a drug that you can't use in California was used mm-hmm. in Louisiana because it's not against the rules. Ah, and you have a lot of inconsistency. Uh, you have a lot of inconsistency, and it can go down to uh, for the for the trainers, for mm-hmm. the jockeys, of where you go in and you don't know what the rules are. Right. Um, although you do see a lot of jockeys that that they're more or less based in Maryland or Illinois or Fairgrounds or Kentucky or or California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, that was just really an informative and interesting. And oh, absolutely. I'm also gonna have to reach out to Mr. Bluen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, that was that was <laughs> Maybe pretty amazing. Season three, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, they are, and what they're what they're each doing, and the reason I really want to have them back, um, I better wrap this up before Blog Talk wraps it up for me. Um, right. Dr. Langwa 
is a, a charity warrior. Mm-hmm. The things he's done for charity, and I don't want to spoil it, are, I mean, badass. Mm-hmm. To raise money for a cause. Pet pantry, racehorse rehoming, you know, probably thoroughfan and, and thoroughbred aftercare. I mean, he's he's done some amazing things mm-hmm. in Absolutely. fundraising. And so we and we're gonna we'll we'll talk about those um when we come back after the first of the year. Mm-hmm. So I just have to coordinate dates with them. Okay. And I'll get it on the schedule. Well, this is 2019. The last wow. show. Went by quick. I'll be honest with you. Went by quick. Mm-hmm. I definitely still remember. Definitely still remember New Year's of uh, 20 or 2018, 2019, and you know, I, I we've done a lot this year, so. Definitely a lot to be grateful yeah. for for this year, and definitely looking forward to season three. Wow, three seasons, Lisa! Holy crap, three mm-hmm. years! My goodness, forty-two episodes for twenty nineteen. Right. Hey, we didn't miss as many because I don't think we have forty-two episodes for season one. So, no. Well, I know our season's kind of funny because we go February to February. Right. So we have. We have more episodes in um, – we have more episodes for season two to go. Yeah. But I think for 2019, Absolutely. we've done around 42 episodes. Wow. Maybe That's 45. Crazy. Yeah, because our season runs February to February. Right. So we've at least done 40 – 44 if you think about it, mm-hmm. at least two in January, if not four in January. So, I mean, at least forty-four, if not forty-six, in mm-hmm. this year, in this calendar year alone. Yeah. So, I think we're doing pretty well. Yeah, me too. And you know, we've built up quite a loyal fan base for. Uh, this year, you know, I was just looking back at the numbers with Brad this weekend over uh, on Blog Talk, and my goodness, some of these episodes, the uh, the listen rate is just astounding to me. It's it's awesome, and you know, it, we've laughed about it before, but you go onto our uh, dashboard where we can see our metrics here, and you know, it's got a uh, it's got a uh, map of the world and you know Mm -hmm. just our reach parts of africa saudi arabia uh egypt our algeria russia you know uh, over in the um uk uh, it's amazing to me south africa uh parts of brazil argentina peru colombia and obviously the u.s (sighs) mexico and canada Mhm. Oh wow! And, and you. we're on Stitcher as well, I think. Mhm. We're on Stitcher. We we're need on to be iTunes. on YouTube. 
Well, that's something we that's can certainly your project work on over towards Christmas. the. Yeah, that's certainly <laughs> something we can work on towards the new year. You have a job to do, Michael. Let's put it this way. Because I have no clue how to do it. Lisa, we'll put it this way. I believe starting the new year, we started below 1,000 all-time listens. We're now at just crossed over 10,000 all-time listens. Oh, wow. Yeah. And a lot of it is thanks to uh, this show right Mm -hmm. here. And, you know, we've got some great uh, content we're working on for the new year. Uh, Obviously, Brad thinking about making his return to uh, to our airwaves, so definitely something to keep your eye on. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to be doing a conspiracy show, so certainly something to keep your eye on. And uh, you know, who knows what else we may have in the works? I look forward to seeing it. All right, let's put a bow on this one. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Michael and I want to thank Mr. Mr. Amo and Dr. Langwa for taking the time to join us tonight. If you want to learn more about Thoroughfan, Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, and Pet Pantry of Lancaster, you can find them on Google. We'll be taking Christmas and New Year's off, and we want to wish everyone a happy and safe holiday season. We'll be back on Tuesday, January 7, 2020, at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 43. We'll update some of the cases we've covered in Season 2 and look ahead to some of the cases that we'll cover during the rest of the season and into Season 3. Until then, have a great holiday season and stay safe. Good night.